Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I took a trip down under via the medium of Skype. After all, the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast budget barely covers a trip to Tesco, let alone Australia. And I spoke to Oliver Lovell. Ollie is the head of senior maths and a learning specialist at Sunshine College in the west of Melbourne. Sunshine College is a diverse multicultural school which is attended by students of over 50 nationalities. Now this is a special episode. I've wanted to have Ollie on the show for ages. Like me, he's more than a little obsessed with educational research and crucially how to apply it in a practical, effective way in the classroom. As the host of the Education Research Reading Room podcast and via his blog and weekly newsletter, something we discuss in the interview, Ollie is amazing at sharing ideas, asking questions, challenging assumptions and provoking deep thinking. So in a wide ranging conversation, we covered the following things and much, much more besides. Ollie describes how and why he planned a process of instruction for a new year 12 course he was teaching for the first time. Now this is essential listening for anyone rewriting or tweaking their schemes of work. We hear about how Ollie integrates opportunities for space repetition, uses example problem pairs, promotes student reflection and makes effective use of data. I found this fascinating. Then we discuss and reflect on Ollie's first year as head of senior maths. Again, this is essential listening for any heads of maths out there or aspiring heads of maths. Ollie describes a technique he used in the first week of his role to include and learn from the other members of his team. That is flipping brilliant and I'm going to put a link to that technique in the show notes. Finally, we turn our attention to cognitive load theory. And you know what's coming? I think this is essential listening for anyone interested in the theory. Like me, Ollie learned about it a couple of years ago and has been obsessing, trialing and questioning ever since. If you enjoyed Greg Ashman and Chris Bolton discussing cognitive load theory on this podcast, you will love this. So I'm going to say it straight away. This is my longest ever interview and one of my all-time favourites. In total, we spoke for about four hours and I could have gone on all day. It is rammed full of practical takeaways and food for thought. I reflect on many of these in my takeaway at the end of the show, including one idea that I literally raced into the maths office to tell my head of department as soon as the interview was finished. For me, it is a game changer. There's loads of references to papers, blog posts and technology throughout the interview, all of which can be found in the show notes, so please check them out. And perhaps the most important of these are links to Ollie's blog and Twitter profile where he is at Ollie underscore Lovell and the Education Research Reading Room podcast. Just before we crack on, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all the podcast listeners who have been kind enough to buy my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. If you enjoy it and have a moment to share a review on Amazon, ideally a positive one, I'd be eternally grateful. Anyway, let's get going. Get your pen and paper at the ready and let me introduce Ollie Lovell. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Oh, 
Okay, Ollie, so we start, as we always do, with your maths speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, I'm going to go a bit superstitious on you here, Craig. And um, <laughs> my favourite number is eight, and that's for the simple fact oh. that I'm half Chinese, and in Chinese culture, eight is the luckiest number. Ah, very... What, what, any, any reason why it's the luckiest number? Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, so... Um, the way you say eight in Chinese is ba, and that sounds a lot like fa, um, and fa is part of, it kind of means prosperous. Um, fa jan is to develop or to grow. Um, and also the character for double happiness looks like two eights together. So that's that. Very good. I love it. Hey, excellent start. Okay, well, question number two then. What was your favorite topic in maths as a student, Ollie? I think... I was, I was thinking about this question and I think one, one kind of real instance came to mind and it was when I was in a physics class in what must have been year 12 and the teacher helped us to all realise that the, the relationship between displacement, velocity and acceleration and how velocity is, is the derivative of uh, displacement and acceleration the derivative of velocity and I was like I just remember that completely blowing my mind because um, they just seemed like three things that were kind of a little bit related but not really and to be able to kind of mathematically represent that relationship was amazing to me oh nice and that that will be fairly late on in your kind of math schooling so was were you a bit of a late comer to, to a love of maths or did you always have a bit of an interest to it before then it's it's interesting. Like I I do enjoy maths. I really enjoy maths teaching. But I I don't and I never have thought of myself as a mathematician. Um, okay. I see myself a lot more as a communicator and someone who's got a real passion for learning in all all realms. Um, that said, you know I've always enjoyed solving puzzles and maths has been an area in which you know you, obviously problem solving and puzzle solving is super fun. Uh, but I also didn't put the time a lot as much time into it um, at school as as would have allowed me to get get heaps out of it got it super fantastic and then final speed dating question ollie uh what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education um well i i guess i kind of thought about quitting uni a couple of times and and the reason i wanted to quit was essentially to become a full-time climate change activist um oh. yeah i think that i think that the next 50 to 100 years are going to be pretty tumultuous for humanity and our non-human friends on this planet. So I think that that would be, if I wasn't as obsessed with learning as I am, um, a really worthwhile pursuit. Fantastic. Super, superb answers all. Well, uh, can you uh, just take us through your career to date, just so we can get a picture of uh, where it all started for you and where you are now? Sure. Well, I started with uh, studying physics and economics at uni. And the idea of that was I, was I was trying to learn about how the world works, both from like a mechanical point of view, as well as a money makes the world go round kind of a point of view. <laughs> um, but really, honestly, when I was at uni, I wasn't as focused on my studies as I was other things, as I alluded to earlier. I was super into like um, activism, um, climate change activism, um, aid and development work, um, and things like that. And that's really the direction that I thought I was going to head into. Um, I guess that's partly related to the fact that I never thought I was going to be a teacher. Um, and that's potentially because I went to a school in which all my uh, all my peers were aspiring to be things like doctors, lawyers, and I saw teaching as a low-status job, a low-paid job, um, and I basically didn't think it was something that I should be aspiring to. But second-year uni, I managed to get a job as like a relief tutor, and then that continued, and then I ended up doing some relief tutoring and lecturing while I was in um, fourth year. And I realized that this was just something that I really, really 
enjoy this this challenge of communicating ideas. Um, and so I, from that point, I thought, okay, I'll be, become a teacher. At the same time, in my fourth year of uni, I, I another really formative experience experience was I I decided I wanted to start to learn Mandarin Chinese. Um, while I'm half Chinese, my family's you know second third generation Australian, so we don't speak anymore. Um, and that's when I came across the work of um, Daniel Willingham and his book. Um, I came across um, people who were into like maximizing their learning, and that's when I got even more even more in love with learning. Um, so yeah, following that, I just did my, I went to China for a little while, um, worked on my Mandarin and then came back, did my teaching degree in 2015. 2016 was my first year teaching and I finished off my masters of, of teaching at the same time. And then, um, and then more, more full-time teaching last year. Fantastic. Superb. Well, we're, we're going to dig into to more aspects of your career as we go on, but one of the key reasons, I mean, I, you know, I've wanted you on the show for for a while now, and the kind of catalyst to, to inviting you was a wonderful uh, blog post you wrote, and we're, I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes. And it was about how you've changed your instructional approach um, this year. I think for your for your year twelves or, or grade twelves, but you, you can explain more about that um, in a second. But I wonder if you can just give us a bit of context about the post, Ollie, and and, and why you felt kind of now was was the right time to to write it. I guess I see my blog in many ways as a way to record my learning journey. I I really value the process of learning just as much as the fruits of learning. Um, and so I wanted to record where I'm at at the end of you know my essentially my second my second year of teaching, what I've learned, what I thought went well, and and set some goals for the following year. Um, also, I've I've got a few friends. I've got some great friends um, in Melbourne who are also like as into teaching as as much teacher geeks as I would say you and I are. Um, and they they were saying, you know, um, I'd like to do some of implement some of your ideas at my school. Um, would you be able to kind of share some of your resources? And so I thought, oh, look, I'll just do a blog post about it and, and try to summarize it there. Fantastic. And I'll tell you what, this would be a good time, actually. Before we dig into um, your process for this year and your, your kind of seven steps, I, a bit of a world first, this, Ollie. You're, you're the first person to experience this. I, I normally ask guests, I normally title it, What Went Wrong, and ask them to describe a lesson that didn't go wrong. But I've, I've repurposed it, repackaged it as favorite failure. Because I think that's a more positive uh, like spin it. on it. Because I'm a great believer like in, in learning from failure and so on. So, before we talk about this this new process that you've got, this new instructional approach, I wonder if you could pick out a favorite failure that you have from a lesson that perhaps didn't go according to plan. And what I'm interested, Ollie, is um, what did you learn from the experience? Cool. Well, um, speaking of favorite failures, I guess I'm actually going to... I'm going to give you two, Craig. I hope that's okay. <laughs> nice. Two for price one. I like it. Go um, for it. So, so the first one is, is in relation to the class that I wrote the blog post about. So for a bit of context on this class... Um, in Victoria, we've got three levels of year 12 mathematics. There's specialist mathematics, which is the highest. The highest there's methods in the middle, and then there's further at the bottom. And I, I had the further class, this bottom level. Um, what, what age are the Ollie in the year 12? 17, 18. Got it. Fantastic. Um, so the content of this course is not content that I'd ever covered before because um, I didn't do the, the, the this, this level of mathematics when I went through schooling. Um, but most of it was familiar. So basically my teaching, and we'll get to this in more detail later on, but my teaching kind of, my, my lesson planning approach was to determine which questions we were going to cover that week. And then basically on Sunday night before the Monday morning, I would myself do all those questions um, and then work out a good way to structure the lesson and, and what were going to be the I do's and the you do's, et cetera, et cetera. However, on one night, I came across this concept of crashing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of crashing in, in a mathematical context before. It's, it's related to activity networks. 
So an activity network is um, when you're trying to map a process, like a planning process or a project, and there's multiple tasks that need to happen at the same time. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you have kids, Craig? Uh, no, not not as, not as of yet. No. Okay. Well, a family, for example, with kids, or whatever you need to do to get out get out the door in the morning. There's a, a series. Of, <laughs> there's right. a series of right. steps that need to happen, um, and there will be within that series of steps or that activity network a critical path, and the critical path is this set of sequence of steps that takes the longest amount of time and therefore kind of lengthens the process and without reducing that critical path you can't reduce the overall time of the project which is getting out the door for example got it um and crashing is saying if you know if you're given a set of constraints and if you can reduce certain paths within the activity network um in a certain way by how much can you reduce the overall project time so right, okay. So in order to be able to crash a project, as it's called, you need to work out um, your constraints, and you need to work out the kind of the flow-on effects of reducing the path of any single activity within the network, and see what happens there. So it's quite a complicated process, and I spent yeah. a few hours getting my head around it, and I got to the point where I was like, okay, I can do this pretty confidently. It's not that hard to like look at a network, size it up, um, work out the effects of crashing any one activity. But when I came to the classroom the next day, I realized the difference between being able to do it myself and being able to clearly articulate it to, um, you know, the, essentially the bottom set of mathematics yes. students who weren't able to just look at something and, and interpret it in the same way. So, so the lesson of that for me was like, one, um, sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer to prepare the lesson. Uh, and two, in preparing that lesson, what you need to do is just really break down, this relates to, to much of what we'll talk about later on, but breaking down something in such a way that students can really, really easily see the steps that constitute the success. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that, Ollie. I think uh, I've, I've experienced this many, many times myself. We have a, a course over here called D Discrete Maths or Decision Maths, and it's all about algorithms and, and networks, and it's for our year 12s and 13s. And I taught that for the first time maybe kind of two or three years into my teaching career and I ain't got a flipping clue for what was going on. I'd never seen it before. I'd never done it at a university. I was like, what on earth is this? And I did the exact same thing as you. I would go through all the past papers. I would um, do all the exercise in the textbook, but it very much on a week by week basis. Um, I was just trying to keep one week ahead of all the kids mm. and I could do the stuff myself, but I couldn't teach it at all because I only had one perspective on it. I only had enough experience to be able to do something one way. And I think the great strength of good teachers is that they can see how to do things a couple of ways. And if their first explanation doesn't work, they've got another one up their sleeve. They can bring in another perspective. And I think it's hard, isn't it, to fast track to that experience. If, if you're, And I, I don't know if you experienced this myself, but when I was teaching those lessons, as soon as I finished that lesson, all I would think to myself is, I can't wait to do this again next year because I'm going to absolutely nail it next year because I can see where the kids are going wrong. I can see the misconceptions and so on. But I don't th I don't know if you agree with me, all, but I don't think there's any fast track to that. It's, it's, it's hard to get better at teaching something. You've almost got to go through that first run through, get, get it out of the system before you can improve second time around or, or, or is there a better way of doing it? I definitely agree. I think, I feel like as I've gone on, I've got better and better at anticipating students' thinking uh, and I've got better and better at thinking like a student. So um, now for me to break down a process, I can kind of anticipate where students will get caught up and 
but there is some concept specificity related to that, and you do get more fine grained and more detailed understanding. Um, but I think you can get better generally as well. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair point. I think that's a fair point. Yeah, now I'm, uh, they've removed decision maths from the A level spec now, so I don't have to go near that uh, near that disaster anymore. Thank God. Anyway, Definitely. and, and this... are you, you, you... oh sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the second one, which is I'm guessing what you were going to yeah. prompt me to talk about. There, the second one is, I think probably the worst lessons I've ever had are the lessons that I didn't realise were bad lessons, um, and what I mean specifically by that is I know there are things I've done in lessons that negatively contributed to students' self-perceptions of themselves as mathematic ma- mathematicians. I have one explicit example. I know I was working with one student um, in 2016. I was teaching VCAL, which is a um, Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning here, so it's for students who are taking more of a vocational pathway. Um, and I was working with him on this concept, and he just couldn't get it and I felt like I'd lined up you know lined up all the ducks as clearly as I possibly could and I'd talk through this in so much you know so explicitly and so clearly and he just could not make that final connection and he, he answered a question that I posed that I thought he, he was definitely going to get this one and he didn't get it and I know that my face conveyed what I was <laughs> thinking at the time which was basically how can you not understand this and, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. and I know and I knew that because I saw on his face a change that kind of reflected what I'd put out. And I think that probably the lessons in which we do those things, sometimes it can be an offhand comment, um, and it's it's when we're not doing a good job of, of creating a culture of er- error in our classroom, as Doug Limov talks about, and as you've alluded to by, by changing the, uh, the wording of this question that you've asked us just now. Um, I think that they're actually the worst, because they can have... Like, if I teach a concept badly, like, if I teach crashing badly, that's not a big deal. And actually, in that lesson, I stopped it halfway through. I said, guys, this isn't working well. We're going to do some revision. I'm going to come back next time. That's fine. Cut your losses. But if you actually have an impact on a student's belief about themselves as a mathematician, that that can be that can last a lifetime. Um, and I think that I've definitely done that. Maybe not that bad, but I've definitely made negative contributions to that in the past. So, that's that would be the worst lessons I've ever I've ever had. That's fascinating, that Ollie. And again, I guess my question there is, how do you stop that? Because a lot of that's almost kind of operating on an unconscious or subconscious level, right? You, you can't. It's hard to control your reactions sometimes. And I've been there myself I, with with my year 11s. And my head inside has been screaming, are you winding me up here? How on earth can you not understand this? And it has to kind of seep out a little bit into your facial expression. So practically how on earth do you stop yourself doing that yeah so actually one of the podcast episodes that i i had on the e triple was with a guy called russell bishop and russell bishop has worked with um maori people who are the indigenous people of new zealand um a lot and he's come up i don't know if he came up with this term but he's talked a lot about this term of deficit theorizing and deficit theorizing is basically um attributing the success um or failure of or the failure of of pupils to various intrinsic and fixed characteristics that they possess. And he basically says, uh, you can't let yourself deficit theorize because if you do, the students will find out and all hell will break break loose. You know, it's just, it's the worst thing you can do. And it was really interesting in the podcast because I was saying, okay, Russell, but like, what are the, can you name three practical things that teachers yes, can do to yes. make sure like that they don't, you know, have these facial expressions that communicate yeah. to students that they think they're dumb? And 
And he just kind of, I felt like he was winding me up because he wouldn't give me a straight answer. He wouldn't give me a list of three <laughs> clear things. And about halfway through the through the interview, I said, I think the pennies just dropped for me, Russell. Like, it's not actually about us on the, externally doing things differently. It's about us controlling the narratives that, that we are playing into or that we're partaking in in our minds because fundamentally that's what's within within us and no matter what we do we will communicate that so i think it's really about just training yourself and not participating in that negative conversation with the other teachers in the staff room about that student just student removing yourself from from those conversations and trying to trying to really see the positives in each student i'll tell you something ollie i've been uh, so the last uh episode i just put out on my podcast was with a lady called helen hindle and she runs the um mixed attainment maths conference um over here and the reason i wanted to interview her was i i've very 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 little experience of teaching mixed attainment classes and um, the schools i teach in are, are settled and <laughs> we had quite a difference of opinion of our approaches to teaching and i'm I, um, this is going to be a bit controversial and people disagree with me on this but i'll, I'll just say it anyway I'm still convinced that teaching in sets, they're trying to convey information um, to whether it's a low attaining student or a high attaining student. I still think it's, it's the way forward for, for if I want to try and convey a concept or introduce a concept and also give help to students throughout their understanding of a concept. However, one thing that's really struck me, and it goes directly to what you're saying there, is the expectations that come with come with setting. Mm -hmm. And if I know I've got a year seven bottom set, I go into that class with expectations that kids are going to struggle to understand a certain concept. There's already a ceiling on what I expect them to be able to do because I've taught bottom sets in the past and this is how far they've gone and so on. Um, and likewise, if I go into a top set, I have high expectations. And if a child isn't meeting those immediately, I'm thinking, what well, there's a problem with this child here. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, what am I and doing I think wrong? those expectations, Exactly. But that is crucially perhaps not what I'm asking myself because I see them as a top set child and I expect them to achieve. So if they're, if they're not doing it, it's their fault, not my fault. And I think the more I think about it, the more dangerous I think these expectations are. And that would be one reason why I would consider possibly moving to mixed attainment for, I think there are many disadvantages to it, but the one overriding advantage is it almost forces you to throw those expectations and those preconceptions out of the window because you are dealing with a, a wider range of abilities and you have to teach and explain things to, to cater for those. Have, have, you, have you, I know it was a bit of a ramble, ramble there, Ol, but have you any any thoughts on that? Uh, what, what's the kind of deal um, over where you teach? Yeah, so it, it depends. I think generally in Australia, my understanding is private schools, which I believe are your public schools, um, schools where you have to pay money to go to them, let's put it that way, yep. they generally stream or set students much more frequently than public schools or government schools would. Yes. Um, I definitely agree with you in that when you, in terms of conveying information, putting students in groups at which you can easily pitch at the uh, the appropriate level is going to increase efficiency. And I def and I also agree with you in that um, there are negative, there can and are negative impacts on students self-efficacy um, I think one of the major things that compounds it though is is the way we allocate teachers to sets I, yes. I don't know if it's the case in the UK but I've read research that says there's nothing intrinsic about setting that is detrimental to the learning of students in the bottom set 
What is detrimental to them is the fact that they get the new teachers, the inexperienced teachers, and they're not as good teachers. Um, and so that's where the problem comes. If we flipped the way we allocate teachers to sets, that could that could potentially be one of the best things we could do for you know equalizing mathematical achievement. Because um, the students at the top are going to be able to learn and learn, like you said, like themselves. And the students at the bottom, yes. if you give them the best teachers, they're probably going to make massive growth. So I don't know, just an idea. We could try it out. It's it's fascinating that Ollie because um, I'm a huge fan as I assume possibly you are as well of, of Dylan William and he sent he sent a tweet out recently that um, said so I'll be, I'm paraphrasing here said something along the lines of um, with regret we have to essentially he's come to the conclusion that we have to throw out the vast majority of research that has been done in terms uh, in terms of sets versus mixed attainment classes because we didn't control for the quality of teachers mm-hmm. and you're absolutely right it's such a such a key factor. And in the UK, often bottom sets will sometimes be given to non-specialist teachers or, as you say, NQTs, because the perception may be, well, they can do less damage and they, they don't have to push the kids on as far and so on. But, yeah, then, then it all falls apart from there. So, yeah, that, that's fascinating, that, Ollie. Totally. And, and linking to this, if people haven't come across the Pygmalion effect, which ex- – have you heard that? I'm sure you've heard of that. I've heard it, but no, please, please. please yeah, yeah, well, it. it's basically just it's, – it's, I think it was – Rosenthal and Jacobson, I may be getting that wrong, in, are in, in the mid-70s, did a study where they, they, told a, they picked at random some students from some primary school classes. They didn't say anything to the students. All they did was they told the teachers, um, we've, we've ran your students through the, uh, I think it was called the, the Harvard Test of Advanced Acquisition or so, something like that, I can't remember. But what we found out is that these three students or whatever are going to bloom. The late bloomers, they're going to bloom this year. Obviously, it was all made up, but the impact was the teachers taught taught those students in a different way, and lo, lo and behold, those students made more progress. So there's a great, you know, five minute YouTube clip on it if people would like to use that in a PD at school. And I actually show it at the start of the year to my students, and I say, you've got to realize, guys, the way you act in the first few lessons towards your teachers helps them to form an image of you in their head, and that will inf- influence how they treat you. So. I suggest that especially in the first few lessons of the year, you present yourself as a hardworking student. Even like, and I actually used to do this myself at school. I would go up to a student at the start of the year and say, hi, sir, hi, miss. I'm Ollie, just letting you know I want to get straight A's this year. <laughs> and, <laughs> and seriously, it impacts how they treat you. Um, obviously, you've got to follow it up later on in the year. But um, yeah, that's, so that's something I tell my students. That's fantastic. And if you, if you can send us the link to that uh, YouTube video, Ollie, if you can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes because that, that sounds fascinating. And I know listeners will want to check that out. That's brilliant, man. Um, so if we, uh, th- that's two fantastic uh, favorite failures there, all. So if we go now back to this, uh, this year 12, so you've got all this wealth of experience going in, you've got all these things that you wished you'd done differently, that you've now got this opportunity to do so. So talk me through talk me through this process of, of what you planned out for your year 11s. And, and we'll kind of dive into specifics. I don't know the easiest way to do this. I know you kind of break it down into seven steps in the blog post. Yeah, let's go through well, what's the steps. Easiest, yeah, let's, let's do that then. So so the first, the first step on your blog post is you ask yourself at the start of the year, you've got to work out what needs to be learned. So um, why, I've, and I've heard quite a few guests talk about this, beginning with the end in mind. I think it's a really interesting kind of concept. So yeah, talk me through that, Ollie. Well, why, why did you start there? Perhaps something I can, perhaps something I can add to this is, is making a distinction between concept, concepts and skills. Um, I, my master's project was working with 
um, disengaged and struggling year eight students in mathematics running a 15-week intervention to two hours per week. Um, and what, I would, what the goal of that intervention was, was to furnish these students with stronger multiplicative thinking skills. So that's basically like help them understand what we're actually doing when we're multiplying, dividing and understanding proportionality and ratios and things like that. The way I did that was using manipulatives and all these conceptual approaches. Um, and what I found was at the post-test, which was exactly the same as the pre-test, I saw basically no growth. And I can't, and I felt, and I felt this while I was teaching them or supposedly teaching them as well, because they might know a number fact. They might know that six times six is 36, but then I would go to them, but how do you know that? Can you, right. rep can you represent that? Like, how do, do you really know it if you can't represent that? And honestly, they did not care. And it, and all it did was kind of, and you know, I was, I was pushing for this conceptual understanding, which was what the research I was drawing on was, was also pushing for. And which is what I felt would help them to develop deeper multiplicative thinking. But what I found was that pushing for this conceptual understanding really actually undermined their skills um, in this context. I'm not saying this always happens. I'm not saying this, these findings yes. can be generalized to all contexts, but for these lower students um, on these basic things, if I had have taken a skills-based approach, I felt like I would have made greater gains. So coming into teaching this, um, this um, third level or third tier mathematics class, I felt like the findings from my master's research project would be applicable. And, then, and therefore, instead of going to the study design and saying, these are the 15, 20 concepts that I need to get my students to get their heads around, I said, I need to actually go to the exams, analyze the exact skills that I need my students to have and, and then scaffold their um, performance of those skills. Um, so, so I guess that's, that's where I was coming from and that's why I took such an end in, ends in mind and such a skill-based approach to my instruction. Got it. And just to clarify, Ali, you, is, you hadn't taught this course before, had you? Or have you, had you taught it through once? That's that's correct. I hadn't taught it before. And, and another relevant thing is, as I mentioned earlier, I like I was not familiar with the content. Obviously, I was I was familiar with a lot. The majority of it, it was all um, stuff you've seen before, like compound interest, simple interest, it's a, all, that, all those kinds of basic math stuff that I knew apart from this crashing and activity network stuff. Um, so I was familiar with that. But, but yeah... Broadly, it was it was new. Exactly what it contained was new to me, and also the process of going through the exams was a great way for me to get to know the course and make sure I wasn't yes. wasting my time and wasting students' time emphasizing things that didn't need to be emphasized yes. and, and cutting short on things that should I should have been emphasizing. Yeah, a couple of things on there. So um, again, go back to this uh, teaching this decision course that I used to do. The exams are crucial, right? Because I, I don't know if it's the same in, in Australia, but some of the textbooks are terrible um, in the sense that they don't they cover the skills, but the emphasis is on the wrong place. So yeah. you will have one question on something and then five questions on something else. But the balance is completely wrong. The, the one question thing is the thing that comes up in every single exam every single year. The five question concept has come up once in the last 15 years or something like that. And it's only if you've done every single exam paper or as many as you can that you really get a sense for, for, for what the exam writers are getting at and where the emphasis is. I think that's the, the first point. And the second thing, just again, just a clarification, Ali, um, was there anyone in your department who taught this this course before? Was this, was, was this kind of new to everybody? And a follow up to that, were you sharing this class or did you have sole responsibility for, for teaching this course? Great question. There were three, there were three classes. Um, 
doing this course and there were two teachers. I had two of the classes. Uh, the other teacher, my good friend and colleague Preet, had the other class. Um, Preet had taught it once before. However, the previous year had been a bit messy because it's a kind of course where you there's a number of modules you can choose from um, and there were various decisions and kind of turbulence within the department the previous year such that we'd switch between models and things weren't bettered down. We didn't have many resources to build off and it had all just been a bit messy. So it was quite close to from scratch. Um, we did work together. We worked together insofar as preparing resources, um, deciding on scope and sequence, um, co-designing the assessments and things like that and also to talking about best ways. But um, this year a big focus is upping the level of collaboration um, on the unit for sure. Got it. Fantastic. Um, so your second part is, and I love this straight away, way, Ollie, is each lesson begins with space repetition. So two things really. Why is why was that important to you, and practically how did you do it? Uh, I mean, it was important to me because all the research tells us that we need to revisit content if if students are going to remember it. And I know that from myself. I I was like despite what I was saying before about how I didn't put a lot of time into maths at school up that was until year 11 12 I put a lot of time and then um I remember I would always get concepts very quickly when in class like a teacher would explain something I'd make the connection I'd be able to do it however when the next year came around I'd be like I haven't seen trigonometry for 12 months I have to learn everything again um so I I knew it was super important and and building on that probably the biggest the most beneficial thing I ever did for my teaching was to try to learn Mandarin um, because it was such a challenge and because it caused me to look so deeply into what it takes to learn something. And from that, from that, I just, it really, you know, brought home the, the fact that you need to revisit stuff like vocabulary items, otherwise you're just going to forget them. Um, and it was also through my, my language study that I came across the spaced repetition software Anki. Uh, and Anki is essentially... Um, a digital flashcard program. Have you come across this at all? No, and it's A-N-K-I. Is correct, that right for correct. people who are looking at Anki? No, I haven't. No, tell us a bit about this. There's one. a number of them. There's Anki. There's also Super Memo, but Super Memo doesn't work on a Mac, unfortunately, and I'm addicted to Mac, so Anki it is for mm -hmm. me. Um, but it's essentially a digital flashcard. So you've got your traditional flashcards that might have a question on the front and then the answer on the back. But this is just digital. And then there is an algorithm. So each time a question comes up, you will rate yourself on how accurately you answered that question. Um, either good, um, no, it was either hard, good, or easy. And based upon um, your answer and how many times you've seen the card before, it will place that card into the future on a reviewing schedule um, and then you'll come across that card again at supposedly the optimum time if the algorithm is optimized um, which the Anki one definitely isn't but it's better than nothing um, and so and I use can I just class. ask on that Ollie there's no um, it's not kind of you write the question and the answer there's no kind of fancy student input where you've got to type in the equation right or anything like that it's very much almost kind of self-assessment right you see a question what do I think the answer to that is? Flip it. Have I got it right? And then rate your answer from there. Is is that right? That's exactly right. And and also, you know, we we're working with constraints at our school. We're not one to one in terms of devices. Um, and I ran this yep. as a whole class activity. Um, I actually think that that's good for students who are lower motivation to run it as a whole class activity because there is a tendency to suppress good, 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 good kind of thing and not actually yes. honestly appraise um how well you know each fact. Um. So yeah, I we we did it as a class and I and I would rate it as a class. 
So you've inputted at the start of the year, or is this kind of on a rolling program, a load of questions and answers, and this Anki software kind of comes up with a, a schedule for you. And what is it, kind of three questions a lesson, five questions a lesson? How, how no, does it, it work could, out? It could be up to it could be up to twenty to thirty questions a lesson. All oh, right. Because at, at the at the end of each week, I'd sit down and say, what were the key points from this week that are gonna that are gonna essentially cue students' memories whilst we're in a question. Um, so if I was teaching like a high level maths, it might be something like, you know, what's the derivative of X squared or something like that. And so it's yep. these kind of facts that we know if it's in long students' long-term memory, they're just going to be able to solve questions so much easier. Um, so anything like that, that we want them to really implant into their long-term memory for problem solving um, purposes, that's the kind of stuff that I focused on putting it in. But then, and, and I would, and I would build those cards, but then, you know, there were also some tensions and I'm, I'm still working out the best way to structure the cards and the best way to, to review the content. Can I just ask then on that? So again, just for clarification, there's no kind of multi-mark problem solving epics on these cards. It's very much kind of facts, fact-based. Would that, would that be right? Kind of quick fire answers. Let me look, let me pull some up. Nice. <laughs> and uh, my, my kind of uh, other, other follow-up question to that is, was it always at the start of the lesson and did you choose was there a kind of conscious reason to to decide to always do it at the start yeah it was always at the start look i i found that the routine of starting with anki was really really valuable um because it it settled me into the class it settled the students into the class and i also felt like if i started with content and then did review at the end the students would have this sense like the review was this kind of thing that Sir uses to fill in time at the end yeah. of class when he's yes. run out of stuff to tell us. Um, so I think by front-loading the lesson with it, you're actually really prioritizing it and you're saying, this is a high priority to us and we're actually not going to do anything else until we've gone we've gone over all the stuff we've, we've done before. Um, so the kind of questions I had were things like, the cue would be... Um, Hamiltonian paths and cycles, and these are types of roots rank graphs. That was the front of the that's the front of the card. It's just a cue, and then I get the students right. to say, "Visit every vertex of a graph once." Cycles revisit ah. the starting vertex, um, and then there's like an Eulerian circuit. That's the front, and the student would have to say, "Traverses every edge of a graph. The graph without repeats begins and ends at the same vertex, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So these kind of things that if they know them, then when they see a question, they they see the the word Eulerian circuit, they can say oh, I know something about that, I know this, uh, therefore I can apply it in this question. Um, there are, there were some cases, and this is a big tension that I've got, Craig. Sometimes, like, sometimes I feel like the abstractions were too abstract to actually help them when they came to problem solving. So, uh, so with, these, with these types of questions, I know they found them really helpful because w whenever you've got an Eulerian circuit question, it will always say Eulerian circuit in it and that will cue their memory and that, would, that will really help them. But some, some questions which were more processed, multi-step questions, um, students found it hard and, and you end up being like, um, how do you perform the Hungarian algorithm? And there's like 10 steps that they have to talk about and that's just really unhelpful. So for things like that, I would have um, four different um, questions on the card and I would say um, as, as they would come up different times I would say okay just do this do a Hungarian algorithm for this one now or, or things like that um, so it was a mix it was a mix of questions and, and then kind of quick flashcardy questions
Got it. And can I just ask, because like, like yourself, uh, with the with the previous guest you were speaking about, I, I'm obsessed with the practical takeaways here, Ollie. What, um, how are the kids responding to this? So you're kind of projecting up doing a whole class on the board. Have they got, are we talking mini whiteboards? Are we talking whole class discussions, writing in books? What, what What's the practicalities of how kids respond to these questions? So it's just all, all eyes on the all eyes on the screen. Um, I bring the card up. We wait for a couple of seconds to give students thinking time. Then, like, I wander around with um, popsticks and I let different students pick out popsticks and they find it fi- find that fun because it's kind of like a game show. Uh, they pull it out and then they try to answer. Um, but, you know, there, there were... Uh, and then, so that was in my further class, in my maths further class. Then in my physics class, they were they were a bit younger and a bit more up for um up for like a game show type of thing. And and I was having some issues with that class. The students weren't they were all quite timid and quiet, you know, the classic quiet physics students. And I wanted to get them to be more confident, so I actually split the class into two teams, and I alternated between um pulling sticks out for one team and the other. And I said bonus point, and I kept points and I said bonus points if you stand up and speak clearly um, so I'd actually got I don't know if you've seen the movie The Wave where they kind of um, it's anyway that's 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 a bit of too far of a side story anyway um, I got the students to stand like stand up like military style and to, and to confidently say the answer and it actually really changed the culture of the classroom so there's different ways different ways you can tweak it um, yeah got it and um I noticed as well, you mentioned in your blog post that you, you're kind of moving away from, from Anki. Am I saying that right, Anki? Yeah. Um, why, why is that, Ollie? Because this, this sounds good to me. This sounds, this sounds, and the reason it sounds good is it sounds fairly low, kind of teacher workload. That at the end of the week, I look back at what's been learned. I just write a series of questions for that, bang it in the software. And then the start of the next lesson, it's, it's not going to be a perfect algorithm, but it is going to keep you know refreshing these questions as and when as and when are needed in a, in a fairly logical cycle so this sounds this sounds great to me so how come you moving away and have you found something better so, so i guess what i can talk about i can talk about some of the limits of anki i can talk about and we're now five weeks into the new year with me trying some other systems and i can talk about how that's been going mm. so so one of the limits of anki one of the challenges is um i have literally no control over the well i have minor minor control over the spacing interval and as, as I said before, I really don't think that the algorithm of Anki is optimized. The algorithm for Anki was developed in like the 80s and and there are much better programs out there like Super Memo, but as I said, that that's, um, that's not Mac, that have much more up-to-date algorithms. Um, and what I found was especially with lower level students, often students just wouldn't be able to answer the questions because you'd see it the next day, you'd see it about three days after that, then the interval goes around 5, 7, 14 and then to like the 30s potentially. And often we just end up with cards that came up. Also with Anki, if if I pressed hard, it would bring that card up again today, but then it would also kind of reset the intervals. And so if, if I press anything other than good, you end up with 100 cards to get through at the start of the lesson. So, <laughs> right, so. so it was really, really hard to balance... Um, the optimum spacing as well as student accountability because also with Anki there's no way to go back to a question that students answered incorrectly because it's already been placed forwards into the future upon you know based upon the spacing interval. What I ended up doing to get around that at the end of the year is I actually would take a screenshot of any question students got wrong. Then once we'd finished Anki, I would bring back this screenshots and say, okay, Steve, you got this one wrong. What's the answer now? And then they'd have to answer. And that actually worked quite well. Um, but I also felt like the interval wasn't that good. Um, 
which is why I started thinking maybe a slideshow will be would be a better approach. Got it. Uh, can I just ask ask on that? Yeah, please. Um, it seems to me like this Anki is is it is kind of more tailor made for as you say what one to one well not one to one but yeah. a, a child kind of working through individually and um, was that ever on the cards in terms of not using it in class but um just setting it for, for like a daily homework or a daily routine that the kids got into or was was that either something that you didn't consider or just wasn't wasn't practical i mean that would be ideal i mean the socioeconomic status of my students though is such that many of them don't have devices many of them don't have internet at home um, we, like I said, at school, we don't have laptops for them. So it just wasn't practical. Um, and yeah. also, like I said, with this, like it, it's enough to get these students to do any kind of homework. And I feel like Anki's quite, it's quite a demanding task. Retrieval practice, where you're sitting there looking mm-hmm. at cards and testing yourself, is is tiring and can be really boring. And I really just, yes. I just didn't like my chances in terms of getting them, getting them to do it. Um, that said, this year I'm teaching, I've, like I said, I've been trying out this um, slideshow approach and my year 12 physics students who I had with, who I had for year 11 and I did Anki with them the whole year and we had the two teams and stuff, I moved to the slideshow approach and I, I ran a survey with them in week four because, um, let, let me backtrack a step. Another challenge with Anki, if I were getting students to do it, um, each person with their own, is there's no way for me as a, external person to input cards into their decks so that's a limitation but my friend George has actually developed a, a software called Vulcan Shooter he's going to change the name soon but if you're a Star Trek fan you'll probably like the name um, <laughs> which actually allows the teacher to do that um, so I thought maybe this is an option for us to go back to Anki so I thought or, or Anki or a space repetition software so I, I, I actually surveyed my students I said I said, you know, my mate George has designed this thing. Do you guys want to have a crack with Vulcan Tutor or um, do you want to keep going with the slideshow? Um, and not many of them said anything. So I said, okay, just write it on a piece of paper as an exit ticket. And I, I did a survey and f- only four students said, um, I like the slideshow. And the remaining 14 said, the slideshow really isn't working for me. I think we need to try something new. Um, so that was that was feedback from them. And, you know, they're year 12, the physics students. They're highly motivated enough that I was like, I'm actually keen for us to work together to teach you all how to independently use Anki and they were super excited about it. So um, we just started last week. I've set them all up um, with Anki. So I'm borrowing computers from various places to try to facilitate that um, and that, you know, it is a technological barrier but, you know, watch this space because by the end of the year we might have 18 students who are really competent with Anki and that will be a tool they can use for the rest of their lives. That's fantastic, Holly. That's fantastic. So let, let me get this right. And apologies if you've explained this, but you've you've your physics students, you're trying to kind of set them up independently with, with Anki. What are you doing whole class then um, this year? Have you, have you abandoned Anki completely or what are you using for this kind of space repetition for the whole class? So um, well, the, the plan in physics is for student is for us to dedicate the first... So we've got two 90-minute lessons a, a week and a 45-minute lesson a week. The 45 is for a progress check, which we'll get onto later. And so the first half an hour of each 90-minute lesson, I'll give students time to practice Anki, um, as okay. well as I, I have this year started to do some of Doug Lemov's Do Nows, um, which is a way of me spacing content and getting to do questions as well. Um, and I've moved away from the slideshow with those physics students. But I'm teaching maths further again this year, and I've been using the slideshow with that class. Um, look, it's been going okay. There is one functionality which I really love, 
which is the fact that um, if, you, if you're in a slideshow and you hit the, a slide number and press enter, it jumps straight to that slide. So it's really great for the no opt-out um, because as I'm going through the slides, I just write the, the name of a student and the number of the slide that they missed. And then at the end, I've got like a picture of a boomerang, um, which obviously you know what a boomerang is. And so then I can just punch in the numbers and hit enter and go back to all those students and really easily um, do the no opt-out thing with them. But I actually underestimated the value of the game show unexpected kind of car random cards pop-up thing that Anki offers um, because I think the students are finding the we're going through the slideshow from the start every time kind of a, an approach and skipping some cards. Um, they fi get finding it a bit tiring. They're like, oh, kind of not this again kind of a thing. Um, I've been trying to get around that and something that has been working a little bit well with that is I've started to give my clicker to students and I say after they've answered a, a question they get the clicker and then they get to click through the slides until they get to one that they think we as a class should review and then we review it um, so I've kind of been getting to take more responsibility for their learning but I'm actually you know we're week five now and I'm actually starting to think mm, have I made a mistake starting off with this slideshow thing and would Anki be better for my further maths class so yeah you know, you're always trying to improve things, but sometimes you have to take a, a step back before you can take two forwards. That's fascinating, Natalie. Okay, so we've got the start of each lesson. We've got some form of space there, uh, revision or repetition, either using Anki slideshow or something along those lines. And um, the next part that, that really, really interested me is that you say each lesson uses example problem pairs to teach content. Now, listeners to this show and anyone who's read my book will know I am flipping obsessed with example problem pairs. They've been an absolute game changer for me. So I wonder if you can just talk us through how do you run example problem pairs and what, what why do you like them so much, Holly? Okay, so when, when I'm designing a lesson, I'll basically, um, what I did last year was I, I cut up past exams, I put them into gr into groups of questions that represented the questions we were going to do those w in that week. Then I would um, group the questions by concept, and then I would pick two good, um, kind of paradigmatically exemplary questions, I guess, um, and then use them as the example problem pair. I will, I. I do very little introduction to a concept. So, for example, the last lesson I taught was we were doing smoothing data, um, and the only intro I gave to that was super minimal. I just said, why smooth data? When data fluctuates, moves up and down um, a lot, it can be hard to see trends. Smoothing data based on means or medians um, or medians can help us to identify trends. So, like, that's all I said. Um, and then I said, and that, that a bit, a bit of student discussion there is there, Ali, or because I'm always fascinated how people people start and introduce concepts. So what are you saying there? Why smooth data? Is it then 30 seconds discuss with your partner, then class discussion, or is it essentially you kind of not lecturing is the wrong word, but you just kind of explaining? Look, look, it depends on the concept. Sometimes things are interesting, and sometimes they lend themselves well to a bit of a chat. Um, for example, the thing just before this mean and median thing. Um, we were looking at trends in data in different shapes like um, seasonality cycles in data and one thing was structural change. So I took a f screenshot of these shares that I bought. I don't know, you probably remember a, a couple of weeks ago the American stock market took a dive and I, sh and, yeah. I, and, I, and I showed up a shot of this thing. I said, where's the structural change in this graph? And, um, and they said, oh, well, it's there when it goes down. I said, yeah, well, I bought shares of this share right at the top of that peak and then it went down. <laughs> and then we had a bit of a chat about that and structural change and stuff like that. But generally, I've, I... We don't have a big chat um, because, you know, their their working memory is a lim limited resource that, that I'm working with and I'm, I try to minimize any extraneous load that I can. 
Um, Can I just just sound that the reason I ask Ollie is this has been a big shift in my teaching that I always used to think every concept needed some big grand introduction. Why are we doing this? Bit of history, bit of background on it, blah, 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 blah. But what I found, two reasons I've stopped doing that for, for some topics. Um, one is the burden on working memory and limit of attention. But the other is that kids don't simply don't know enough about the topic to have anything to connect it to they haven't and crucially they haven't experienced any success in the topic and i tend to find that sometimes almost kind of diving straight in and doing example problem pair practice and so on we can then have the discussion afterwards about how this connects to other areas of math at a time when they've experienced success they understand a bit more of the topic and they start they can start to see those connections themselves and I think that's been a real big change in my teaching, almost cutting out the or cutting right down the introduction to some topics, diving straight in. Let's do the maths first. And it goes back to this. Often you should do the how to do something before the why you're doing it, because kids don't appreciate the why before they've been able to do the how or the better place to experience the why we're doing something after they've done the how. And I know a lot of teachers don't agree with that, but that's that's been a big shift in my teaching. I, I don't know if you've any any thoughts on that. Definitely, and I think that relates to my answer to your question of what was your favorite section in, in maths at school. Um, when I had that physics lesson where I learned about the relationship between uh, derivatives, integrals, velocity, displacement, and acceleration, I'd already done the maths in specialist mathematics. And so when the teacher said, oh, here's the relationship and there's derivatives involved, etc., I could go, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And, you know, it was just a sentence from the teacher. It wasn't some big statement or big intro but i had to have that prerequisite knowledge in order to make the connection in order to be interested yes. by it um so yeah i'm totally with you there um that said like i think there are some some cases where there is such an interesting application that i'll show a three to five minute youtube clip on um you know on some networks thing or something like that or dykstra's algorithm because maybe google maps uses dykstra's algorithm to help identify the best path and Dijkstra's algorithm takes ages anyway for me to cover um, so I may as well give them a good intro to it but but generally no and generally I find that the motivation for my students comes through having success got it super okay so let's let's assume that you've done some kind of brief introduction are we at the stage now where we're diving into the example problem pair and, and what does it look like Ollie? for sure for sure so so the way I teach off a Google Doc um, and the the concept so this one was um, moving means smoothing without centering um, will be at the single uh, bullet point indent at, at the next bullet point indent I'll have information that I want students to either copy into their books or I'll print it out for them and say stick this into your books or, or retain the information somewhere and then on the third indent I'll have I do you do and basically I'll just choose very very simple questions or very very similar questions um, for the I do and the you do I'll do the I do on the board um, and I'll leave it there while they do the you do and then below the you do there it'll say extra practice so any student who finishes early um, will be able to go on to some extra practice if if they feel like doing that um, and then I'll bring the whole class together and I'll and I'll go through the answer and answer any questions also before I go set them free on the you do I'll say are there any questions have I explained that clearly enough would you like me to go over anything again um, but generally it's a pretty quick turnaround of concepts and we would only do usually only one um, question of each type before moving on to the next one um, but I should add to that I 
I'm very explicit in breaking down concepts or should I say skills. Um, so there won't be a massive jump between skills. So often students will be getting practice with the previous skill and the next example problem pair. Um, so it's they are kind of getting multiple shots at it, but it's a sl with slight variation every time. Got it, right. A couple of questions on that then. So the when you're going through the I do, what, what's that process look like, Ollie? Again, is the is it you very much leading it? Is the student discussion? Are the questions being asked? How, how do you present the, the I do? Um, it's it's generally um, I'll, I'll I'll be projecting the question up on the board and then next to it or or on top of it because we project onto a whiteboard I will run through it and I'll just talk through my my thinking I'll be underlining things on the question I'll say oh see this word it says normal distribution in the question therefore the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to draw a bell shape um, and I'll and I'll talk through it or if I've done that a few times I might say um, I've seen the normal distribution here uh, what does that tell me Muhammad. And Muhammad will say, oh, the first thing you do, sir, is to draw a um, bell shape. So it depends upon how new the stuff is. Um, but I try to I try to cold call and, and I find that keeps students on their toes and, and focused as well. Um, but it's very much led by me. Got it. Um, the My other question was about the you do. This is, uh, and I can't believe how stupid I've been with this. Um, a change I've made with my teaching based on it, uh, I was giving a talk the other day and a teacher said to me, why don't you do this? And I was thinking, oh my God, how have I not seen this coming? So I used to do, I used to have the I do on the left uh, or the worked example on the left and the you do on the right. And she said, why are you showing the kids the you do at the, at the same time? Like if you're so obsessed with working memory and you want everyone's attention focused on what you're doing, don't show them that you do yet. Save that for the end. Otherwise, kids' eyes are wandering and thinking about that. So, do you have them both projected at the same time, or are you are, are you kind of ahead of the head of the game with me on this one, Ollie? And you're just showing that you do after you've gone through the the, the I do. Yeah. So my I do says six B question six A A page two ten, and then I switch to the oh, textbook man. or or the past exam question and project that, so they won't be looking at it. And I and I generally emphasise, um, I will give you time to write down stuff put your pen downs, pens down, look forward. If you listen to me now, you will be able to do the question. If you don't listen to me, you'll get lost, that kind of a thing. Got it. Um, my next kind of practical question here, because I'm fascinated by this, Ollie, is how, um, how are you going through the you do? How are you kind of collecting in responses or getting a sense whether kids have got it or not? Um, so I will usually just travel around the class, um, but I also find that often students will ask me a question. If if I see lots of people getting stuck on the same thing, I might pull this up and say, "Hint, yep. guys, you need to do this." But but generally, I find that most students can can follow along. Um, and then if if it was a tricky concept, I'll usually go through go through the whole answer myself. If it was an easier concept, I'll usually take a photo of some students' work and I'll send it to myself via just an app, an instant messaging app called Riot, which my which my school hasn't blocked on our network. Um, and then I'll just project that up and say, does this, you know, does what Abdul look, did look right to people? Do they don't have any questions, um, any comments, things like that? Can I ask you on that, Alex? I, I'm, uh, I interviewed Doug Lemoff and we discussed show call and he, he loves show call and I love show call. But I'm always interested in the practical ways of doing this. So for, for listeners who haven't listened to the Doug Lemoff um, episode, show call is a kind of almost an extension of cold call. But instead of asking a student uh, what their answer is, it's literally showing the rest of the class that the students answer. 
And um, one the mistake, well, I think it was a mistake. In fact, I know it was that I used to do was my way of doing that was to call a student to the front and say, can you go through this work? To exa- can you show your example on I the board? And the problem too, yeah. Is, yeah, and you've tons of issues with that, right? You've yeah. got the time issue. Um, like it's taking up needless time because uh-huh. they've already got the answer written down somewhere. You've got the fact that some kids don't want to come to the front and kind of make a public show. You've got the fact that some kids want to come to the front of the class a little bit too much, and it's uh, they do a right, horrendous I, job I, of explaining. Yeah, and then I, I, have a, I have a girl who would only write in a green pen, and it was just an absolute disaster. So I've cut all that out, and I, the way I do a show call now, but I'm, I'm interested in, in just digging into what you've said a bit more, is I'll do it two ways. I'll either have, we have a visualizer um, in some maths classrooms, and if kids have done their, um, their you do um, on a mini whiteboard, or even in their books, I'll grab a book, stick it under the visualizer, and that'll project it up on the board, and I find that really effective. But also I, um, I'll i take a photo and I'll um, upload it to Google Drive and I'll have my Google Drive um, open on, um, on the school network and I'll be able to access the photos there. But it sounds to me almost like you've got a more efficient way of, of, of doing that, Ollie. Well, can you just name the, um, na- name the, the system you use, the, the instant messaging system you used again and just, just talk us through how it works a little bit? Yeah, it's just right. It's just exactly, it's called right, R-I-O-T, and it's .im, but if you Google it, you'll find it. Um, it's like Messenger, basically, you know, how you send a picture in Messenger, but there's a few benefits like it probably isn't blocked in your school's network, Messenger's blocked on mine, but also you can choose the photo quality. Um, and then, you know, you just have various groups various groups set up that you can send it to. Uh, Google Drive's a good option, but um, also I upload all my private photos to Google Drive. Therefore, if I'm, yes, if yeah, I'm, if I'm in Google I Photos, I end up with like photos of me and my girlfriend on the weekend or whatever, and yeah. I probably don't want that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I've been there with that one. That's great, Ali. And my, my final question on this section was, um, can you just clarify exactly what happens after the you do and you've either gone through it or whatever? How much practice, uh, are, if any, are you giving kids of that skill that they've just done in the I do, you do? Where are those practice questions coming from? Um, and kind of how long do you, how long do you spend on that period? of the lesson generally none so i will generally just do an i do and i'll do a you do exactly got it so it's just i do you do check it and then are we back to another i do you do yeah and then we're like okay this is a slight variation on that concept uh, concept you know if we if this changes to this then i'm gonna have to do a slight change and it's gonna be like this here i'm gonna do one now you do one um and then you know usually i can often i can get through the week's content in a lesson like that or in an hour because I've spent the first half um, on space spaced repetition, and then the the final ninety minute class of the week will be again ha- half an hour of space repetition, and then we can just go back and I can be like, all right, just go three chapters back in the textbook and do this question, and go two chapters back in the textbook and do this question, and it just opens up heaps and heaps of time for for kind of interleaving concepts and and spacing content out over time. Got it. Right. Well, if I because this is interesting this because it's different to what I what I do and I'll I'll outline my argument and then if you can kind of say say why you do yours um so I'll do to to use your terminology I'll do an I do and a you do but then I will um give my kids probably 10 minutes of what I call intelligent practice so it'll be it'll be a sequence of questions that I've put together and I'm obsessed by this at, at the moment Ollie it'll be a, so let's take an exercise a simple example fractions of an amount say for example so the I do might be work out two fifths of 30 the you do might be three quarters of 24 or something like that 
But then I'll want them to do a sequence of questions which develops that concept a little bit further. So I'll want them to see how two fifths of 30 is related to two fifths of 60, how it's related to three fifths of 60, how, what happens if I change the two fifths to a four fifths and all this kind of thing. I want them to see those connections. But more, well, just as importantly, I want kids to have time to consolidate things at their own pace because my fear sometimes is during the I do you do that I'm forcing everyone to work at the same pace and for me the best form of differentiation is is time is the, the amount of time certain kids need to understand the concept or so on so for me that's where the differentiation and the consolidation comes in in that period of practice immediately following the I do you do and it only takes five or ten minutes but for me, that's a really important part of the lesson before I then move on to the next concept or or a slight extension of the concept in the next I do, you do. Um, so that's what I do. How come you kind of cut out that 10 minute practice part? Does it come later on? And do you ever find that some kids are kind of getting lost or some kids are ready to move on quicker than other kids and so on? Yeah, totally. I, d I definitely think that sometimes a little bit of additional consolidation would help more. And I think I've got better over over time at reading that. Um, generally, if I feel that, I will try to do another example problem pair in a similar way. Um, but, I, you know, your approach is potentially better, superior to mine. And I should probably try, try a bit more of, of what you're doing. Um, yeah, the, 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 there's a couple of downsides though. Like yours to me sounds like you're getting through more stuff. It sounds like you're in a bit more kind of control of, of the pace and the, and the structure of the lesson. And also, but this, this is something I've, I've got an idea in mind to make this better. These sequence of questions are flipping hard to write to, mm. to get exactly what you want them to, to do. I mean, I, I, I've written a load of them now and I'm still pretty crap at it. But um, yeah, if you get that right, I think it's really powerful. But the wrong sequence of questions, you're, you're essentially wasting your time. And I think that's when I'd then be more willing to kind of revert to, to what you're doing. But no, that, that's interesting. I just wanted to, because I'm, I'm fascinated by people who use the example problem pair approach and the little kind of subtle differences between. So that, that was fascinating though. Totally, totally. Um, and I, and I, I, don't think sure. I don't think there's any perfect format for this stuff. It always yeah, depends on the concept, the class, individual students. And I think like, watching your class and being reflexive in the moment is the best thing you can possibly do i think you're absolutely right absolutely right right we're on to um we're on to stage four of this and you've kind of teased this earlier on ollie this this progress check so can you can you talk to me a little bit about this what what, what is the progress check why is it important um so i mean we're lucky at our school to have our lesson structured as, as i suggested earlier 90 minutes 45 minutes 90 minutes um and so we just use our 45 minute period as basically a 20 or so minute progress check, a test. It usually covers content from the previous three weeks. Um, and then students know that they have to, you know, they're going to be seeing this concept every week for a month. And hopefully that's kind of helping to build into long-term memory a bit more effectively. Uh, and then we'll spend the last 25 minutes of, of the class going through that. The main, re well, f for me, the main reason why we do, there's a couple of main reasons why we do that progress checks one of them is accountability um it's accountability for teachers because it helps us to know what whether we've covered the stuff we need to cover and whether our students have learned it and it's also accountability for the students because it's so easy for a student to just cruise through a semester think they know yeah. everything and come to a test and say hold on i actually don't know this <laughs> and to to give them like a substantial quiz each week 
is just so valuable in terms of tracking their process and helping them to be aware of what they do and don't know. Um, the second thing is, you know, as as you and all of your listeners will know, retrieval is a form of learning. So we've got, I've just talked about a, the progress checks as a form of assessment for teaching um, because we can look at what the misconceptions were and we can address them in our lessons or in further progress checks or in do nows. But also the actual process of just retrieving the information in a test-like scenario uh, ingrains that information in long-term memory. Um, so that for those two reasons, I think they're a really va- valuable exercise. And again, just into the practicalities of this, Ollie. So two things. Um, firstly, just to clarify, it's content from the last three weeks. Is that right? And Correct. again, can I ask, is, that, is the reason you don't go further back in time because that stuff is being flagged up in the space repetition at the start of the lesson using the Anki stuff? Or is there another reason why you're kind of reluctant to, to call in questions from last month, three months ago and so on? Um, I guess I've, I have found, and it's probably also related to the way that I've been doing my example problem pairs, it takes a good few weeks to actually really consolidate the content for students. Um, so I've found that you know, 20 minutes you can get through a bit. I usually include between seven and nine questions. Um, and I just find that, you know, you cover probably about that many concepts each week. And going back further, you struggle to fit everything in. Um, it's also a bit of a hang up from where I got the idea from, which is from a paper by Andrew Butler, where he used used the same approach the previous three weeks, except he was using them in homework assignments, I think it was. Um, so it's just a bit of a hang up from that and also it's 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 very manageable for students because the idea of the progress check isn't to catch them out it's to actually give them an opportunity to demonstrate that they that they are having success and to help them help to focus their study because they're like I know a progress check's coming up and whilst it's valuable to say this progress check could cover anything um, that we've that we've looked at over the whole year so far. If you say it's def, it's only going to cover the stuff from the previous three weeks. It's actually manageable for them to go through the notes from the past three weeks and to revise that content. God, yeah, and I th- I, again, I can't remember the exact paper. This this is embarrassing. This so who? In fact, it might even have been in Dan Willingham's uh, Dan Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School that it's actually beneficial to tell students the exact domain that's going to be tested in a test because it helps them structure their revision better as opposed to saying it could literally be on, be on anything at all. And then because if, a, if you tell kids that the test could be on anything and they don't do well on it, it's quite hard for them to pinpoint how they could improve their revision process. Whereas if you say it is on this particular uh, narrow domain and they don't do well on it, they can isolate better exactly where in the revision process things have gone wrong so i think there's something in that ollie i I like that as i say my only concern would be ensuring that prior content is is flashed is 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 tested for retrieval but i guess it's kind of on a rolling program and i I guess you'll have other ways of of whenever you come to revision and pass papers of bringing in stuff from early in the year would that be right that's exactly right and i mean you know we we end up with a major test around every eight weeks anyway so the concept of the student seen in week one, they're going to see in week one, two, three, four, and then again on the test in week eight anyway. Sure. Um, and then we sure. and then we we're trying to actually spread out our tests this year so that the mid year tests include stuff from 
um, the, well, the end of term two test contains stuff from term one as well. So that builds it in again. So the, 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 the spacing of the retrieval is actually probably getting close to optimal anyway, just from, from seeing the content on, on that schedule. Perfect. Can I ask as well, um, I'm interested in the stakes of these these retrieval things because so I, again I talk about in the book and I, I got this from from Rob, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork that I'm obsessed with low stakes quizzes and I will try and do a low stakes quiz um, every single lesson with my kids even though it takes 10 minutes of the lesson I think it's the most valuable thing um, that I do and based on our conversation Ollie I'm already going to be reflecting on the domain of, of that quiz whether it whether I'm it's too broad whether I need to, to narrow it down a little bit but for me, the stakes the stakes are important because I don't want. Well, it's tricky. There's a balance. I, I I almost don't want this to be seen as a heavy, high pressure form of assessment. I want kids to appreciate this as a learning opportunity. I want don't want them to be afraid of putting down an answer for fear of what happens if they get it wrong and so on. So, what happens with these progress checks? That are the firstly are the kids doing them in silence for the kind of twenty minutes, and then what what happens to the marking, and what happens to the recording of results? Great question. So, um, it's done in t- under test conditions. Um, yep. And I actually treat the the stakes of the test differently for my year eleven. I only have a year eleven. Well, actually, I don't have any year elevens this year. But last year I had eleven and twelve, and I treat it differently for eleven and twelve. Um, where our school's seven to twelve, but we have separate ju- separate junior campus, and there are some different practices and protocols between senior and junior um, and our 7 to 10 our junior campus they don't really place much of an emphasis on homework at all um, and our, there aren't high expectations around that but obviously for you know for the last two of years of school students simply have to be doing homework so um, for that reason uh, last year with my year 11s I made 10% of their overall mark associated with their progress checks so that's like nice. each progress check is less than a percent um, you know yep. you know about half a percent if that um, so but there's still something there and I can still you know draw upon that when I'm trying to build their um, the, the positive habit of studying for stuff and, and doing homework and doing study um, with year 12s there's actually you know state kind of mandates on how we do assessments and what count what can and what can't count towards assessment um and for the sort of subjects i have you can't you couldn't have something like a project progress check count towards a final mark and so it's simply habit building but you know the accountabilities the stakes are there in that if a student fails a progress check or does worse than i think they could be doing on a progress check and that's different for every student uh when i hand it back i have a and I've, i've actually done a really bad job of this in the first five weeks of this year because i forgot how much i hammered it at the start of last year and so i kind of and i think you know this is pretty rookie error but i forgot all, all the time I spent setting norms in my last year's class and I expected, walked into this year's class expecting them to behave in, in the same way as my end-of-year class did last year. Um, <laughs> so, rookie era. But ideally, and, I, and I'm starting to do it again and I did it a lot at the start of last year, I have that conversation with students and, and I basically say, you know, it could be, Lamb, you got 70%. I think you could have got 90% on this progress check. Um, how much study did you do for this? And he might say, oh, uh, I didn't do any sales. So I'll say, okay, well, you know, let's let's hang out at lunchtime today and you're going to do qu- these three questions. And so there's, there's stakes built in there and they understand that if I've done that consistently, that there are, there are you know, ramifications if they haven't, if they haven't prepared and if they're not achieving, achieving what they can be achieving. 
Got it. And so if I'm right here, Ali, the, so you're marking these, these progress checks. And the, the reason I ask that is, again, something Dylan Williams said um, that's really resonated with me is that the best person to mark a test is always the person who sat the test, because that's when they can remember why they gave this answer. They can correct it. They have either hypercorrection effect or confidence building or whatever it will be. But also, just from a practical point of view, it reduces teacher workload tr tremendously. And again, I couldn't do these low stakes quizzes if I was marking them, them all myself. But is your justification for marking them yourself is it to ensure that kids take them seriously um, so that the stakes are, are at a significantly high level? Or is, is there another reason? Are you doing something with that with that data that, that you wouldn't be able to do if the kids were marking them themselves? We don't mark them ourselves. Our students mark them. Um, so oh, sorry. <laughs> that's, okay, that's okay. So the way we do it is, like I said, the, the last 25 minutes of that 45 period, um, or it ends up being more like 20 minutes after settling in time, we go through the answers. Um or I'll go, th I'll go through the answers. I'll model the answers. I will talk through key points. And I'm often yes. able to say, I expect that the mistake that everyone made here is they didn't realize that the x-axis starts at 15 instead of zero. Therefore, right. you got the y-intercept y incorrect. Or, and I go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so they actually self-mark. And the way I do that is I have a packet of red pens. I put them on everyone's table and I say, okay, pen's down now. I want everyone to put their pen away in their pencil case um, so that I know no one's changing their answers. Um, and then we just use the red pens. Uh, go through that and I definitely agree you know feedback should cause thinking and the best per person to market is the student and that's and that's exactly I've literally got these notes in front of me that's that's why that's why we do it that's the main reason um, and it, it enables me to emphasize in real time what I want the students to focus on um, and it, yes. and like you said it reduces my marking load um, and I know you oh no we'll get to that question later on you're gonna follow that up in terms oh. of how we record marks and things like that so that's okay yeah yeah, okay, cool. Because the next bit I, I, I was interested in, and this is point five, Ollie, is this, and this really, really struck me. This. So it's this progress check, check reflection. So I want you to tell uh, listeners what this is, but also what I'm fascinated in is how on earth do you get kids to take these reflections seriously and to get them to actually be useful? Because I've been there myself. I've been, I've experimented with everything here. What was big in the UK, I don't know if this hit us, but this was big in the UK about four, probably three or four years ago was the Twitter reflection. Whenever Twitter was really big, it was right, summarize at the end of your lesson in 140 characters what you've learned today. And it was such a gimmick and it was an absolute waste of time. But it looks great in books. If, if someone's observing you and like they come around, oh, brilliant, there's a kid summarizing with a hashtag and all this kind of stuff. Absolute waste of time. But even, when I've got my year 12s and 13s getting them to reflect on their learning and what they need to do it's just I feel sometimes it's just going through the motions I don't know who I'm doing it for I haven't I certainly haven't got it right so help me here Ollie talk me about these reflections why do you do them and how do you get kids to take them seriously 100% um well I think that there's 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 two things you can get out of a reflection. One is the generative effect of the reflection, and that is, you know, the learning that happens as a result of the reflection in and of itself. And if you never do anything else, you've learned something through doing a reflection. I think it's hard to mandate students to learn from that. Uh, mm. Some students will naturally reflect and will naturally go, what did I get wrong? Why did I get it wrong? What do I need to do next time? And some students will go through the motions and treat it as homework, something to do, rather than study, something to learn from. Um, so the way 
we're trying to get around that is the reflection isn't just a reflection, it's actually a study resource. So the way that the sheet's set up is it's in two halves. On one half is the question, and I really emphasize, and the number of, the amount of time I have to spend getting students to do this correctly is ridiculous, but uh, there's nothing on the questions. One, the question is complete in such a way that you can answer it completely. So right. s- students often just write, what's the y-intercept of the graph? And they don't draw the graph, and it's like, uh, yes. how are okay, you going to yes, answer yep. that question? If I gave yeah, that to you yeah, in a yeah. test, what would you write? <laughs> so make sure the question's complete, and make sure there's nothing on that question side of the sheet that is going to give you any hint of how to solve it. And then on the right hand of the sheet, there's a dotted line down the middle. On the right hand of the yep. sheet, it's got the questions. What was the que- well? It's got the questions. Questions. What concept did this address? And that's the an attempt at promoting metacognition. What was the mistake yep. you made? Again, and what would you do differently next time? I.e., how would you solve it? Um, so the idea is they're not just a reflection, they're actually a study resource and students are meant to fold down that line and then an activity we can do in class, for example, on a Friday when I've got through a week's content, is say, like, okay, get out your progress check reflections and solve them again. Um, and uh, another, another, probably another thing is, another question you might have in terms of process, because I know you love your process, is how do you how do you collect up these progress checks, how do you mark them, etc.? Um, what I do is I say, whenever we're doing our progress checks, I get the students to put out their progress check reflection from the previous week in front of them, and I will just walk around the classroom and mark that off in my mark book. Um, and then I'll also, I'll do a show call of the best progress check reflection of the week. I'll project that up on the board and I'll say, this person gets progress check reflection of the week. We give them a round of applause. I give them a lolly. And I say, this is why. Because, for example, um, Craig forgot to take one of the reflection templates home but he he took one of his old ones, ruled it up in his book, ruled it up in his book, and made his own. You know, he did. He wasn't just making excuses, saying, "Oh, sorry, I didn't get one of the sheets." He actually took some initiative and etc. Or, you know, Jenny did a really good job at explicitly stating what she got wrong and her misconception, and she's done a great job of um, improving that or, or doing the right thing. So that's how I, I, that's how I collect it, and that's how I kind of police and, and help this to support the students to do it correctly. Got it. I'm going to say here, Ollie, that and it's a big claim. This it is the idea of the split page with the write the question there, write as say so you attempt a metacognition, and then the actual answer, and having that as a revision resource. I think it's the best reflection idea I've ever heard, and one of the best um, kind of getting kids to take ownership of their own learning ideas I've ever heard because it's. It's practical. It produces an actionable revision resource. It gets them in the moment to reflect on things that they've struggled with and got wrong. So in the moment you are you're getting them to, to knuckle down and focus on errors instead of saying, which I hate and which I see all the time, I got 80%, sir, so I've done brilliant on this. Well, no, what about the 20% you got wrong? So this this is sorting that out for a start because you're focusing in on the questions that they got wrong. But then Whenever like kids struggle, I find kids struggle to revise. They struggle to revise effect- effectively, and especially so. Our sixth formers in our school will have free uh, free periods um, a couple of times a week, and um, where they're supposed to be revising. And some kids will just kind of plow through homework and stuff, which which is fine. But here is something practical and different and individualized, personalized that they can do in their revision time or, or lessons and so on. So again, Ollie. I, I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea. So I want to roll this out. In fact, I'm going to roll this out. So I'm just going to want you to dig into it a little bit more. Sure. Are there any things that have made this work or anything you've learned from this this process of doing these these kind of reflections? Because I, I, I want this to work. 
Look, I look. I I got to admit, Craig, I haven't built it into my practice. The revi- the use of the of the um, reflections as a revision resource as much as I'd like to. I probably managed to do it a couple of times a term, but I would love to do it like even more. So, are there any other tips? I think one thing that I do do from time to time is when, say, there's a there's a so I look at the progress check reflections when they're doing their progress check and I'm able to, at the end of a progress check, um, just quickly look at what, what students have got on that progress check basically at the same time as I can see their progress check reflection. If a student has a neat progress check reflection but they just got 40% on the progress check and especially if they got a question wrong that they that's completely like parallel to what they did their reflection on, I'll say... I'll actually just right there and then fold in half their progress reflection and, and put the question in front of them and say, can you show me that you still know how to do this question that you put on your reflection last night? And the amount of times that a student goes, oh, actually, so I just kind of copied it out. And you say, okay, but the point of the reflection is for you to reflect and to actually think, what did I get wrong? How do I do this next time? So there's that kind of real time helping to bring their attention to um, to the value of the reflection that I think I think can kind of help. Got it. No, I love it. I absolutely love it, Ollie. And I'm yeah, I, I'm I'm building this into my practice. I'm building this in. I think it would be perfect for uh, low stakes quizzes and also for kind of big big kind of homework assignments or or mock exams and stuff like that. Stuff that, as I say, getting away from this, kids just focusing on their mark. I want them to focus on where they've gone wrong and how they can improve and building up this personalized schedule. So I think, yeah, I think this could, could go big, Ollie. This could go big. And when I do my takeaway at the end of this and uh, end of this interview, this is going to be one area I'm going to dig into just because I'm going to go for a big, long walk after this, as I always do, and just kind of process how I can make this work. So I just think that's a wonderful technique. So thank you for, sh- thank you for sharing that all. That's great, Craig. It's um, nice, nice of you to say. I do have one more comment on, on Twitter yeah, summaries, on twi- Twitter reflections. <laughs> yeah, go for um, it. So I don't know if you've noticed, but I got this approach of Harry Fletcher Wood. When I, when I read an article now, I'll often kind of take screenshots and do like a Twitter. Yeah, it's great. A thread is yeah, brilliant. A yeah. thread with, with my takeaways. Now, there is a generative effect to that. Um, but again, if I leave that in the, in the Twitter sphere and never look at it again... I'm going to learn bugger all from it or I'm going to retain bugger all from it. So what I've actually started to do is I've, I compile them to, you've probably seen into my weekly um, teach all these takeaways and then that goes out as an email to my subscribers But then, and that goes out on Friday. But then on a Saturday morning, the first thing I do is I go through that teach all these takeaways and I put every single um, concept into Anki and so that's where the review comes. So I'm actually doing this in my own life as well. That's great, Ollie. That's a, a really nice system. I love that. That's fantastic. So what, what? So what I was trying to say is, you know, Twitter takeaways. There's, there's, you know, they're not, they're not dead in the water. There's, we can revive yes. them. Yeah, I like it. I like it. They're back. They're back. Um, so we're up to kind of point six now of this, and we we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but just just to just to kind of uh, hone right in on it. Um, you you say that each week the teacher analyzes the progress checks to identify and kind of. Uh, questions students found challenging and so on can you just talk us through the the practicalities of that because it's one of those things that that could get out of hand right and that's the kind of thing that if you've got 20 25 kids in your class and you're you're looking through these questions what's your system for finding the key things to focus on sure um one thing i could add to to what we're talking about previously is i actually do collect up the progress checks even though the students self-mark them i collect them up anyway (laughs) there's this really funny thing which is if 
if you collect up student work, for some reason they take it more seriously. And even though they've, yeah, <laughs> and even though they've marked it themselves, when I hand it back to them, they still look at it as if I marked it. It's it's, it's, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> um, anyway, what I did last year at the start of the year is, is I was literally t- collecting them in, and then I was flicking through each one, and I was doing a tally. Like I would write on a piece of paper question one to nine, and then whenever I saw a student get one incorrect, I would put a tally there. Um, that would take about seven minutes of class um, and I realised that that wasn't a realistic expectation on, on the other teachers in the in the department. Um, so I thought, how can I do this? And I thought, I've just started doing it live in class. So at the end of the progress check, after I've done all the marking, I write up the numbers one to nine or however many questions there are and I say, raise your hand if you got question one correct. And I just quickly count up and I put nice. the number there. Raise your hand if you got question, etc. And then I write on the board in a progress check, 1.5 I take a photo and I email it to myself just straight away and then next week when I'm planning the progress check I can say well I know that questions 1, 5 and 7 only had had less than 50% of the class who got it right so I'm going to repeat slight variations of those questions and then build in new content slash older content that I haven't covered yet that's really good again that's it's doing a couple of things that right it's making it manageable for you but it's also, I would imagine, giving the class a good picture of who's, you know, what what areas they need to focus on as a class and stuff. And I guess my only question would be, but maybe this is the age of the kids and the relationship and so on. I think a lot of teachers would say, oh, but what about the kid who's got everything wrong? Is this, is this bad for it that to be kind of out in the public and so on? Is, is that ever a concern or is, is it all about kind of building the ethos that these are learning tools of learning these assessments and it's not about you know, you've got them all wrong, you know, you're stupid and so on. Is, is it a concern for you that or are you all right with that? I mean, that's why I say raise your hand if you got it right, right? Yeah, good. And, and, good. and, and students, I mean, I think if they got a question right, that's great. Like it's, you raise your hand and you feel proud and, and yeah, no, one, no one notices, like people don't feel noticed if they're not putting their hand up. Yes, if you know what yes. I mean. So I, I'm, I'm not worried about that. And, and I agree. It's, that's nice. It's good for it to be visible to the class and... Um, when I'm on my game, I say to the class, now, which questions do you think you should focus on before next week's progress check because you're likely to see them again? And they go, oh, yes, yeah, sir, okay, I'll get it. Um, and then they don't study it or they do study it or whatever. Um, but when I'm on my game, I do that as well. And that's a, an extra little thing that I think helps. That's really good. Love it, Ollie. Right, we're at the the, the end now, point seven here. And this is what happens at the end of the year. So you've got students doing lots of practice exams and you make collections of recap questions based on their errors. So... One thing that hit me straight away were these recap questions. Can you can you talk us through through those? How, how do you make those? What, what do they look like, and and how do kids do them? So they're basically a very small variation on the progress check reflection approach, um, and probably the most efficient way to kill trees possible. Uh, so basically, <laughs> I print off I print off past exams once single sided on paper. Um, yep. I try to compress them a little bit, but and then I we do exam modules. Usually by the end of the year, students. Most students, not all, are ready to do at least modules at a time. Um, so we'll do modules under time conditions. Um, and this is this year we last year we did it from like seven weeks before the exams. Um, and then any, any question a student gets wrong, I say physically cut out that question, um, rub out anything you did on the front of it that gives you a hint of how to get the answer, and on the back of it, yep. um, write it. And then just have three Ziploc bags, ones ones for where the questions start and then you build your own kind of spaced retrieval cards where you migrate the Brilliant. cards amongst the Ziploc bags. Um, look, the students who care a lot and want to do well do a great job of this and the students who can't lose them and they go into the ether and it doesn't work very well. And that's that's something I'd really love to improve improve this year. 
That's fascinating. And it's, it, well, a couple of things with this. One, I love it. Um, but two, it speaks to a wider issue that, I, and again, I don't know if you come across this, Ollie, that you come up with an idea like this and it works really well for some kids and for other kids, it just doesn't work at all. And it's it's the perpetual dilemma that, that I think we teachers face that what do you do with those kids that it doesn't work well for? Do you abandon the system and try and come up with something for the whole class that works not quite as well for the kids who the previous one worked really well with, but it works slightly better for the kids who, who don't care as much, perhaps. Or do you just leave that system in place for the ones that works really well with and then try and come up with something else for these other kids? It's tricky. Do, do you know what I mean? It's tricky, isn't totally. it? Like I, it's you want you want the best for every child. But you also don't want to overcomplicate things with. Right. You're doing that system. You're doing that system. You're doing that system. What do we do, Ollie? <laughs> great question no i mean <laughs> this year what i'm going to be trying to do is to introduce a little bit more scaffolding around it so what i'm going to try to do is um have a a spreadsheet that each student has um and maybe this is scaffolding and maybe it's just going to confuse them even more i guess we'll find out when i do it um but the spreadsheet has a list of concepts that i've covered over the whole year um and then when they get a question wrong they can think what is this related to? Um, and they can kind of build up a picture. And so instead of it just being this random piece of paper that's, that is a question and they'll be like, oh, yeah, this was a hard one, but it's never going to come up again. Um, they could think, well, actually, this is exactly a concept that, that Ollie covered this year and I'm obviously struggling with it and so I need to do more questions like this. And also it will be a point of conversation. I want to do more kind of um, conferencing with my students towards the end of the year. So it will be a point of conversation for me. I'll say, can you bring out your spreadsheet of concepts? Can you show me your ticks for the question, the, con the times you got it right and the times where you got it incorrect? Um, and let's have a chat about what you really need to focus on. And, and I've actually built build a spreadsheet of concepts and past exam questions. So I, I might even not get them to do the decision of which concept is this. I might just give them the the spreadsheet where it's all mapped out for them and they can say, oh, I stuffed up, you know, 2006 exam two question three. I'm looking on the spreadsheet. That's this concept. Oh, I know I got this yes. wrong last week as well. Therefore, it's definitely something I need to focus on. Maybe it's going to be too much for them. Again, it's all pencil and paper because just of resource restrictions at our school. So that might make it not work as well also. But I look. That's I'd love some ideas, Craig, from yourself or from listeners. But but that's my idea at this point in time. That sounds great, Ollie. And final question on this before we just reflect generally on on how you found this is and past papers is something I'm 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 really interested in here. Um, I've said publicly that in the past I've made a mistake that in year eleven, which is our GCSE kind of first high stakes exam year. I've been guilty of giving kids full pass papers to do too early in the process, I feel like as soon as they sit down in September, here's your weekly pass paper schedule, blah, blah, blah. And what, what happens inevitably is that kids will get 60% first week, 65%, 63%, 67% and so on. They're just getting right the same type of questions again and again and again, but they're not improving or certainly not improving as much as I feel they should do. And I interviewed Daisy Christodoulou um, um, on this podcast um, even though she's a, an English teacher, we spoke in depth about how we both felt exam papers should be left as late on in the process as possible because they are not learning tools, exam papers, in the same way that bespoke tests or assessments that you yourself have written, uh, written I feel anyway. So what's your take on exam papers, Ollie? 
how late in the process do you start giving kids full exam papers for for uh, for the high stakes exam that they're going to be sitting at the end of the year? Yeah, I guess I guess the idea of the recap question was it an attempt to tread a mi- middle ground. So it yes. was to start to expose them to the time of type of time constraints that they're actually going to be exposed to in the real test at the same time as helping them to identify weaknesses. And and I actually allocated um you know the first Usually a module takes about 20 minutes. So in our 90-minute lesson, I would allocate the first 30 minutes um, to recap questions. Like, you're all here now. You know what to do. Do your recap questions. And then we would do another two modules within that class. And I do feel like for most students, that was a perfectly fine and perfectly appropriate time to introduce the modules. There were probably, I would say five or six students across my two classes who were still too shaky on the stuff to get much out of that. And this year, I think it would be wise of me to work individually with those students um, during that time. Last year, I was I spent the time writing um, model solutions while the students were doing it. I would type up model solutions so they had them to help construct their recap questions. Um, but I mean, I've got lots of them in place now and I think my time would probably be better spent um, potentially uh, working individually with the really struggling students at that time. Got it. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, I just want to summarize this, this thing, because it, this kind of process you've put into place, Ollie, because it, it's, it fast, it's absolutely fascinates me. This you've, what I like about it is you, you've thought through every aspect of it. And also it's not the finished article. You, um, you, you're already looking to improve things and seeing things that haven't worked and, and, and tweak things and so on. Um, but it seems you've tried to create almost like a, a process of instruction. What, can you just talk a little bit about that? What, why, why did you feel there was a need to do this, and why have you kind of structured it in this way? Um, I think one of my big lessons from my first year of teaching is teaching is bloody hard, and it's <laughs> and, and it's and as you would say, it's flipping tiring, and <laughs> it's it's honestly you whatever happens, you, there's gonna be a time in the year where you're pretty burnt out. Um, and you're going to fall back on habits. And so I, I, I just thought I have to build some sort of process so that my habit is high-quality instruction, hopefully. Um, so that's that's why I've tried to, you know, essentially scaffold myself um, and make sure that my fallback, my fallback position is something that's going to still be of high quality. It might not, not be as good. I might not carry out, it out with as good fidelity, which is why often when we've been talking today, I've been saying, if I'm on my game, I'll do this or I'll do that. Yes. Um, but I feel like if your fallback position is still a good, solid process, um, then you're gonna you're setting it. Hopefully, setting your students up for success. That's really nice. No, that that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, I, you mentioned in the blog post all that your results have um, improved um, that you've seen as a result of this. So I wonder first, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Because <laughs> I often get emails in from people whenever I suggest something they say well has it worked how do you know this is effective so that would be my first question how do you know that this this is an improvement and secondly do lessons feel any different what's been the response from 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 the kids to to this process that you brought in um look I think I think it's as with any education research it's really hard to categorically say this worked um yeah I think that 
you know, I think that students like lots of the components of the instructions. Whenever I did student surveys, they always really liked Anki and they always really liked the progress checks, even though they were like, oh, so not another progress check. They were like, actually, we really like it because it helps us learn. Um, so they actually got it. Um, so I think I won some ground with my students there and they kind of, um, you know, they, they saw me as an organized teacher and, and they valued that. But, you know, our, our results did improve. Um, as I mentioned in the blog post, for this particular subject, they were the strongest results. Um, they were the strongest results in five years, and I'm I'm not. We haven't got data that goes back much further than that um, that I've had access to. Um, but I think across, yeah, I don't I don't need to say I don't need to say anything else else about that. But it, the data indicates that there were elements sure. of the program that 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 helped. Um, what was your other question? And how do how, do the lessons feel any different? And what's what's been the kids' responses? Yeah, as you, I mean, I talked a little bit about kids' responses then, but as you rightly mentioned before, um, the, the developing this process is a constantly evolving thing. So I don't think I could, I can't say there was a before the process and an after the process because in the year before last, I was doing Anki in classes and I was doing progress yep. checks. But you know, you just refine it over time. You just help you just make it better better and, and smoother and, and tweak it and and so I've and you know I've I've used Anki since my fir- first year of teaching um in classes but it was just a lot messier back then um there's videos on my blog of me doing it and it's super messy and people can go and watch that if they want to um but uh but yeah so there's no before and after and look things feel smoother and smoother but I think that's also a lot to do with the fact that I'm just becoming a more experienced teacher and that means that a lot of stuff becomes implicit and automatic for me and that opens up heaps of space in my working memory to just be more aware of what's happening in the classroom to watch the faces of students to react more reflexively to feedback from students in the moment where maybe I would have just charged through and stuck to the lesson plan when it's in my first year so so there's, there's lots of different factors Got it. And last question, Ollie, before we move on to something else is, this is obviously something that you brought in with your year 12s or, or grade 12s. What, if any, of this do you think would work with, let's say, year 7, so 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds? Okay, well, I think I think you've still got a backwards design because if you don't know what you're, where you're trying to get your students, um, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what you're doing, basically. Um, <laughs> I think there's... I think some method of weekly accountability for both students and teachers is a great idea and I think that progress checks are a great are, are a great way to do that well, as I mentioned before I was teaching VCAL which is more of a um, vet kind of trades pathway maths course um, in Victoria and I, I ran progress checks with them and and they thought it was good they thought it was great I, I did run tiered ones so it was like students knew that the first few questions were easy ones and the last few were for just a couple of students in the class um, because it was much more mixed attainment, um, and that was fine. Um, I would still I would still incorporate retrieval practice. Whether Anki would be the best approach for that, I don't know. Maybe it could just be, you know, with, built into the quizzes more. Um, I think I think example problem pairs are still great, and I would still use them a lot. Um, I think I would still try to place emphasis on homework being about study and not about completing tasks. So something we didn't talk about, but I think is really important is um, if you give students homework, like try to get them to study rather than tick a box. Um, So I always give Mm. students work solutions for all the homework I ask them to do. Well, I don't actually give them homework. I give them questions and I say, 
the progress check is going to be drawn from these questions essentially. So you better you better study them, and here's all the answers to them as well in clearly worked out. So so if you get stuck, you just look at them. I mean, I think that sets them up for success much more than saying here's some questions you don't have the answers. Um, go away and get go away and have fun getting lost at home kind of a thing. See, that's that's interesting. Just on that, Ali. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. That I would imagine that working well with my year twelves and year thirteens because I think especially if they've chosen to study maths and obviously they're at that maturity level where I would hope they realise that homework isn't just about me giving them a score and shouting at them if they haven't got it if they haven't done it and so on they they see the benefits of homework so i would imagine me giving them problems like you have with work solutions and them knowing that that's going to appear on a progress check would be incentive enough for them to to take it seriously and get a lot out of it what do you think about younger kids do younger kids have that maturity to to know that if you say to them look you don't actually have any homework to do here or or you don't actually have to write anything down and hand anything in it's just a case of preparing what would be your instinct now would they would you have to change homework for younger kids i mean my answer is i don't know because i don't have enough experience (laughs) teaching them sure um but i do know that i definitely wouldn't give them questions five through 10 in the textbook with no answers because I think that's a total waste of time. And I know students, especially the students who have low levels of metacognition, they will spend two hours looking at five questions and learning nothing and just getting frustrated. And there's no way that I would do that. Um, So I'd probably do something like use some sort of online thing where it gives them immediate feedback. You know, Khan Academy is pretty good for that. You know, I haven't used it, but I've heard Times Tables Rockstars and that kind of a thing is pretty valuable for, for younger students. So... I would probably take, I, I agree with you, there might be challenges in terms of the self-directed study. So something like that where you can, might not work in my setting, but digital, some digital prompts would, would be probably pretty valuable. Super. Um, and, and the only other thing I would say is I would be really keen with younger students to uh, explore alternate assessment approaches to pencil and paper tests and ones that require them to perhaps articulate their thinking more. Um, obviously, the the goal at year twelve is to be able to sit a pe- pencil and paper test, and that that you know that makes our our job clearly defined, which is helpful in many ways. But I don't know to what extent that actually, or I feel in some ways that actually restricts, um, like I said, the the development of conceptual understanding. Where really that's what we wanted. That's the end goal, whether or not the Yes. We we should we are we should be why before how we should be how before why, the end goal is conceptual understanding. Um, yes. And so I think I would tr- I would have a lot of fun exploring that more with younger year levels. That's fascinating. Okay, Ollie. So one of the most requested things I get from listeners to talk about is um, running departments and learning about running departments, because we have a lot of heads of department listening to this. We have a lot of senior leaders who manage uh, departments. And we also have a lot of teachers who inevitably will end up being heads of departments or certainly aspire to to become heads of departments. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ollie, but this is your, oh, you've, you've done one full complete year as Head of maths um, at a, a, a secondary college. Is that right? He, head of senior maths. So I sit below the head of maths for the whole, but I, I look after the year 11 and 12 maths teaching. Fantastic. Super. So let's go with a big question um, straight away. W- what have you learned? What worked and what didn't work from from that first year? So what worked? Well, it was, it was, a, it was a tumultuous year. We had um, one, of, one of the staff members is... 
only on two days a week and can't, can't ever make it to, to meetings. I work with a team of five teachers. Um, one was sick for a lot of the year. One left halfway through the year unexpectedly. Um, <laughs> so there were a few challenges. But some things that we did manage to get um, sorted out well was the progress checks. So the progress checks are de delivered pretty consistently right across all senior maths classes, and I think that that's had a positive effect. Another good thing that went went well, I think, is I ran a, a learning to learn program, like a session of four PD sessions with the the members of the senior maths team who were able to make it um, towards the end of the year, and that provided a lot of context for the whole kind of architecture of our instructional program, um, and that helped a lot of them understand in more detail what the heck I was trying to do. Um, it was It's an interesting question because there's off, in terms of the how before the why and the why before the how, it, it applies at the, at the department level as well. And I actually made the decision at the start of the year to not, um, not go into much of this background stuff because um, I was drawing on the work of Thomas Gusky. I don't know if you've heard of his work. Um, he basically talks about uh, different models of, models about how teachers change their understanding of what works in teaching. Now, the traditional understanding of how people individuals change their mental models is that they they do some research or they come across some idea. Um, they, they then change their mind about it because they've come across the, the idea. They've changed it. They then change their mind about it, um, and then they change stuff that happens in their classroom. Um, but Gusky suggests that, that actually isn't what happens. He suggests that what happens is teachers have to try something, they have to see the effects in their classroom, and then the effects, observing the effects changes their mind. Okay, so drawing on what Gusky was saying, I, I wanted to try a few ideas before going into too much detail about the theory behind it. And also, you know, coming in as a new head of department and suddenly coming in with, with all this theory stuff, people are just going to be like, what, what are you on about, mate? Um, so <laughs> so I, I, figured, I figured I'd just try a few ideas. Um, but I didn't want it to seem like the ideas came out of nowhere either. And a thing that I really wanted to do was to start by drawing on the expertise that the department already had. Um, so I actually started by having an individual conversation with each member of the, the, the department and asked them four questions. The first question I asked, is there anything that you think worked particularly well in your teaching or classes this year that you think the rest of the team could benefit from hearing about or adopting? Okay. That's great. Just say that one more time, Ollie, because I'm, I'm loving that. I'm picturing people making notes of these as they're going. So give, give us that one more time. Sure. And we can put it in the show notes too. Is there anything that you think worked particularly well in your teaching or classes this year that you think the rest of the team could benefit from hearing about or adopting? Lovely. Okay. And you know, that question had two, two roles. The first role is obviously people were doing good stuff and I wanted to know what it was. But the second thing that it was doing was it was acknowledging expertise and it was showing that I acknowledge that there's already heaps of existing expertise in the department um, and that we want to make the most of that and we want to you know um, really value that as we move forwards the second question was if you magically had an extra three hours per week to improve your teaching what would you like to spend it on and again again that question had had two roles um, the first was or, or one of them was um, for me to try to work out what teachers wanted to learn about because obviously I love reading stuff and that would mean I could leverage leverage that and go away and find out whatever I wanted. Um, but the other thing is it says to them, I understand by, by saying if you magically had an extra three hours. Um, and also it take, takes Absolutely. off, hopefully it would take off the mental pressure of saying what else, if I just said what else do you want to learn about, that shit, oh, they think, oh shit, he's going to 
lay all this stuff on top of us. But if I said, if you magically yes, have three, yes. it kind of opens up a, a space for imagination in their mind. That, that's what I was hoping anyway. Third question, what would you most like to learn about in order to improve your teaching in the coming year? Nice. Okay, so that's again related, but a li- little bit more targeted to say like, I'm happy to do some research on your behalf. Um, and it's also saying like, it's setting high expectations saying, I know that you want to improve. Um, and then just finally the open question, which is anything else. Can I ask, can I just ask on this, Ollie, just, pra- and this is interesting, this is some, related to something we were talking to um, off mic before we, before we started recording. Practically, are you sending these questions in advance to teachers? Because the reason I'm asking this is I'm imagining I'm sat down having a conversation with you. You hit me with these amazing questions and I'm, I'm kind of a bit overwhelmed. And it's I'd imagine it's the kind of thing that I would be driving home later and think, oh, I wish that I said that to Ollie. That's a better answer. So how are you getting the best answers out of your staff for this? Um, I don't think I did send them through in advance. So if I were to do it again, I'd definitely send it through in advance. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a great point, And I think it's important to bring that out as well. So thanks for that. Thanks for that great question. But, do you, were you, but you were getting good answers. Were, like, were, were you quite impressed with the answers the staff, your staff were giving? There was, there was some good stuff that came out. I think there would have been more good stuff that came out if I sent it through earlier. Uh, but where I was heading with this is that there was enough in there that was already consistent with some of the ideas I had. Mm-hmm. So the yes. teachers made comments about things like, you know, tracking student progress, um, like they're not getting enough practice and things like that. And 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 I was able to see how some of the ideas I had around progress checks and things like that, you know, people saying things about reflecting, lots of the ideas I had already dovetailed perfectly in. So I was able to just really easily draw on the, the ideas and expertise of, of the teachers with whom I was working. Also, you know, modify my language to better fit their language and the way they were describing their ideas. And then, and that, I think that helped with um, kind of introducing the ideas. Got it. Fantastic. Um, you described earlier on, Ollie, this seven-step process to your lessons, which was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm wondering, you've obviously, I assume, shared this with the department. Which of those aspects have your colleagues adopted and what have been the kind of most successful? And the reason I'm asking this is that sometimes when, when listeners listen to this show, I, I always like them to come away with one or two things. And for, for someone to tomorrow try and instill this seven stage plan it's going to be quite difficult whereas if there's one or two things that they can bring in straight away that that it's not just been successful for you but your colleagues have found successful then you know that's a good sign that it's going to it's going to be transferable to to other people so are there any bits of your approach that your colleagues have adopted and that have worked well yeah well really like i mean and we it's probably the thing we spend the most time talking about and it's the progress checks is such a valuable learning and assessment tool and i'm sure all the listeners anticipated this was going to be my answer as well and (laughs) and you know that it's been reflected in the classroom it's the thing that i've managed to uh most consistently get implemented uh across the board you know i've got i've got hopes and dreams for lots of other stuff but but it when we when, when it comes to influencing um, teachers' practice in the classroom. One, who's to say that what I'm doing is definitely better than what they're already doing? You know, yep. it, would, it would be it would be way too cocky for me to even, even think, think that. Um, but two, many teachers, what they value most highly, and I'm definitely one of them, is the, their autonomy in their classroom and to be able to, you know, do what they think is best and to, to have that to have that um, opportunity to innovate and try things out for themselves. And I, and I would never want to crush crush that. So one of my challenges for this year and in the years to come is to work out how to 
how to learn from what what the teachers with whom I'm working with whom I'm working are already doing, and also how to integrate some kind of best practice stuff that I think is is potentially will potentially add to their teaching. Got it. Superb. And any um, this is putting you on the spot a bit here, Ali. But did anything come from those discussions that particularly struck you as that is a brilliant idea? That's something I'm gonna I'm gonna do myself tomorrow. Look, nothing nothing comes to mind. I could go back through the through the minutes, but 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 your question was: <laughs> Does anything come to mind? And and no, it doesn't. But uh, maybe maybe there was one thing. A, a teacher. A teacher talked about getting students to work together more, and and I think that's that's something that we definitely want to want to encourage. But there's also you know there's times when that works. I know I know Sweller says um, when students are doing worked examples, it's definitely less efficient for them to be working together. But there are times like if a student if a student if one particular student struggling and one's one's stronger in an area, then work getting them to work together can be good. Um, but it's it's something yet to be explored in any great depth at our school or in my classroom at Got least. It. Fantastic. And final question on this, um, Ollie. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about, about rolling out, whether it's later this year or whether it's next year? Anything that excites you with your department? Sure. There's there's, there's a few things. Um, but first, I'm going to backtrack because I, I, I wanted to say some more stuff and turn this into an even longer longer interview. Let's so, do it. So we'll go back to the <laughs> Learning to Learn program because I think some people might be interested in that. Um, so as I mentioned, it was a four PD session and it uh, covered yeah, four lessons. So the first one was cognitive architecture and the question of what is learning. So discussing the kind of changing long-term memory definition. Um, and that was new for everyone. Um, and it was really good as well because we had two student teachers on our team at this time as well. And so they had lots of great ideas and were able to uh, input lots. The second one was cognitive load theory, really basic, um, and the limits to working memory. The third one was on the retrieval effect, and the fourth one was on spacing effect and interleaving. So it really nicely tied into what we were trying to change, and it helped a lot of teachers kind of um, draw some of the ideas together. Um, and it's great because um, I'm actually going to deliver this PD to the whole senior school over this year, so all four lessons. So it's just, I think it's a good example of how something can kind of start small and potentially, hopefully, spread out across the school. But whether whether it changes practice, whether it changes student learning, that's that's another question. Can I just ask on that, Ollie? Because I'm I'm fascinated by this. These PD sessions were they? Um, what's the best way to phrase this? Was this um, kind of compulsory sessions? Were staff having to give up additional time to uh, attend these sessions? And on the wider kind of spectrum from this, what do your kind of weekly departmental meetings, if they are weekly or whatever, what what, what does it look like when your staff get get together as a department? Okay, so so the this little learning to learn program or whatever you want to call it was run within usual um, hours. It took yep. a long time to implement it because I have found it hard to to carve out time for senior maths team specific stuff. It's because um, you know we get a we get a senior maths team specific meeting maybe once every three four weeks. Um, the rest of the time it's it's combined with the whole school. Um, sometimes we get time within those meetings, the whole maths team across the whole school. Sometimes we get time within there within them to do senior stuff, but often I don't know until it's the actual meeting time. Um, and that's you know that's understandable because there's challenges for timetabling and things like that. Um, but so. So yeah, it it is a challenge, and also this year we've started to do some action research at our school, um, and that's taking you know that is an additional time um, use, and it has also drawn time away from our our senior senior specific meetings. So I 
it is definitely something that I've that I've struggled with, and it's and, and I've got some things to say about that. Um, in terms of your question, which you asked me uh, about, what am I looking forward to changing this year? Um, but in terms of what didn't go that well, um, I definitely have some things to say. I think the things, the mistakes that I made in my first year as head of department are probably very similar to the mistakes I made in my first year teaching, my first, you know, um, that many teachers make. And that is to try to make everything whiz-bang fa- fancy. You know, not not too fancy, but try to cover too much in in not enough depth. So I kind of had this idea that each each department meeting, not that I went into, as I mentioned before, I didn't go into a lot of theory, but I kind of felt like I had to come up with ideas for the department meetings. I don't know how... Yes. I, I don't like... So it's like this week we're going to analyze the year 12 results mm. from last year. Yeah, and yeah. this week we're yeah. going to do this. And it's like, while some of those activities were valuable, I think it's much more valuable to, I mean... In terms of my, what are you doing? Going to change next year? Like the first point I've got is narrow the focus. Just decide on a couple of things that you really want to hammer, and just revisit them every single meeting, and just make sure that people are feeling supported to do this stuff. Are there any barriers? How are we tracking with that? And I think that if I had have done that last year, I would have made some more inroads with with some of the things I was trying to do. Um, can you just just on that all? Can you give me a practical example there of, of of what would be you consider an appropriate narrow focus for a departmental meeting, and what how would that pan out? How would you structure it within the meeting? Sure, sure. So it's not necessarily a, it's it's more like an a recurring item on the agenda would be the best okay. way to say it. So this year I'm trying to build like um, a few recurring items into the agenda. One is um, like our, is our house in order? I.e., is our folder structure up to date uh, is are all our resources progress checks and things like that so last year i helped us move into dropbox um which i think was was one thing that i managed to narrow the focus on and i'm i managed to help us move from a shared drive which can only be accessed at school to dropbox which can be which can be accessed everywhere yes. and i contacted some other heads of department i asked them how they structured their folders and i like made all this documentation around this is the way that we're going to structure folders so if i go into your folder for this subject i know exactly where everything's going to be and we managed to get that in place so the scaffolding's there but this year it's going to be like checking up and i already send the first thing out after the first month and i was like a spreadsheet it was like these are the subjects these are the things that are meant to be there tick not not so much of a tick the things that are missing and that's something that i'll follow up. so that will be a recurring item another recurring item will be students at risk so based upon our progress checks um and we can add some add some comments here well i'll, I'll say it now so i was actually really inspired by um your interview with Danny Quinn in terms of her talking mm. about how she how at Michaela they order results from their their weekly quizzes I think it was and they have basically yep. two essentially I think it was two piles and it's like students we need to talk to and students we don't need to talk yes. to um, yes exactly yeah right. so last year I was I was recording every student's um every student's result for every progress check which was helpful for the year 11s when it contributed towards 10% of their mark but for the year 12s mm. it like it wasn't necessary and like I'm a lot quicker on alphanumeric keypad because I worked as a receptionist than a lot of the other teachers are, right? <laughs> so I spent two years doing doing that every day and so I can do that pretty quick. But, but it takes a lot longer for other people. So I've, I've created a mark book and again, this is another thing that we've standardized. But basically, you only have to record three things based on the progress checks. One is if a student got 100%, you put an H in the box. If they were missing, you put an A for absent. And if they got less than 50%, you put an X. 
Um, ah, nice. And that and that auto fills onto the next sheet, which is the progress check reflections sheet. So, um, and I'm happy to share this. If people are wanting to implement the progress check reflection and the progress check thing, then this, these spreadsheets would be really handy because if they got 100% on the next sheet, it won't say that the progress check reflection is due. Um, and if and every other thing, whether they're absent, um, whether it's or absent, I won't say a progress check was due because I can't do one. Progress check reflection. Um, and then every other one will just fill out as due, and that makes it really easy for for teachers, um, for teachers to follow up. So that again, this year scaffolds the students at risk recurring item on our um, in our meeting structure because I can just say who for three weeks in a row or however many weeks in a row has got under fifty percent on the progress check. What steps are we taking to support that student? And it doesn't necessarily have to do much, but I think just bringing it to our attention and having it as an agenda item. Um, helps us to be more aware and therefore for cha- to change our practice. God, yeah, and the reason I asked this about that's fascinating that is because I think, I don't know if you agree with me on this, I think maths departmental meetings and any subject department meetings, it's a huge, um, it, it's massive potential to be really, really useful because you've got all your colleagues together, you've got a wealth of expertise there, but the maths departmental meetings that I've seen across different schools and I've ran uh, in, in my school, they haven't been as effective as I want them to be. They tend to kind of spiral down into admin, moaning sometimes, and a lot of kind of looking at your watch, thinking, when's this over? Because I've got a big pile of marking to do. So I just wondered if you have, so I like the idea of narrowing, that we're focusing on recurring agenda items. I like that. I wonder if you had any other tips just to get the most out of these departmental meetings. Just simple things like how long do yours last? Do you? How do you ensure that people? I guess it's like almost like planning a lesson. How do you ensure that people aren't just kind of cruising on autopilot, just nodding at the right time, but not actually listening and so on? How do you get the most out of these meetings? Um, they they go for an hour, and generally, I I just try not to waste people's time. So if if I have something that's worthwhile and like time down, and we have to do it, then we'll do it. Um. And we'll do the recurring items. But if we don't have anything, then I'll say, pull out your marking and you can do some marking. Nice. You know? Yeah. It's, 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 I, I just try to really respect the, the time of the teachers with whom I work. And I, I'm not going to ask them to sit around having a conversation. And, you know, if there's a conversation that can happen between two people, then it happens between two people because not everyone has yes. to sit around being bored. Fantastic. And just on that final question I asked then, Ol, is there anything else that you're looking forward to, to changing next year? Have, have we covered it all? Yeah. So I guess there's, there's four. Thinking, thinking before this interview, I tr- kind of brought it down to four lessons that I kind of learnt from yeah. last year, and things that I'm going to try to do more and better this year. Some of them I did okay, some of them I didn't do very well. So the first thing, as I mentioned, was narrow the focus um, with those yeah. recurring items. Um, the second thing is just remembering that I, like, as a department head, you can't add until you subtract. So what I mean by that is everyone's super busy. And if I'm going to ask teachers to do something extra, I better be thinking about what I can take off their plate. Um, And one way that I I do this, you know, I I think of the, well, I came up with this concept of conspicuous service. So I try to do things, obviously, with the teachers with whom I work that shows them that I actually know that their workload's high and that I'm trying to lessen that, lessen it for them. And that can be simple things like if I'm walking past a colleague as they're packing up their classroom, I walk into their classroom, say, how was the lesson? And I, and I clean the board for them, you know, right. it can okay. be as simple as that. Or, you know, if you go on the photocopier, say, if you've got any photocopying to do, you know, let me, let me do it for you. 
and or, or and just protect them. I remember one of your guests before said um, they see their role. Maybe I think it was one of your guests. They see their role as a department head to like protect their teachers from mm. administrivia. I don't remember who it was, but I definitely agree with that. So if there's audits and stuff, I'm happy to you know I I see that as part of my job to take that load off them so that they can focus on teaching. And you know I have time allowance. It's meant for those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, that I try to do conspicuous service, and I think that that helps the teachers feel like I actually care about them and then hopefully makes them uh, more open to trying new things uh, that I suggest when I do suggest them. Um, a third thing, and I think I've, I've, I did this relatively well last year, but I think I can do it even better, and that's like kind of trying to lead by listening. Um, so there's something that we, at the start of our meetings, I just have three questions. Um, the questions are, what's something you're grateful for? And that's you know, we all know about gratitude and I know it's something Michaela does really well. Um, what's your workload like at the moment and is there anything you need help with? So, And again, are you, how's that working? Are, is it an open conversation with everybody or are people writing this down? No, we, what just, we, just, sit at, we just sit at the start of the meeting and, I, and we just go around a circle and everyone says something they're grateful ah, for. Nice, something, um, nice. And, you know, and, that, and that, that kind of pr- practice of checking in is, is not something I've seen in schools very much, but it's something I very no, much... No, not at all. No, it's it's something I very much draw from my, you know, my background and work in like non-for-profits and things like that. And I think it's so valuable. And it's funny because when I first came across it, um, when I was in or- an organization when I was like 21, I was like, what a waste of time. What a yeah, silly yeah. thing to do. Why aren't we just getting straight into business? But I actually learned that how important that is. And as, as a leader, someone running the meeting, if, if you can ask, what's your workload like? And someone says, I am absolutely smashed at the moment. You know, I'm not going to give them anything this meeting. I'm not yeah. going to give them anything extra. So yeah, trying to, trying to lead by listening and also asking questions just like when you're checking with people, like how are you feeling? Um, and, and the key question I think is um, when you propose something, do you think this is going to positively impact student learning? Um, which is equivalent to saying, do you think this is a, a shit idea? And just giving them the space to really express that. And, and if not, what, what should be changed? Or like, is this a total waste of time? And I often say, do you think this is a total waste of time? Do you think, like, tell me if, I, if you think I'm going on about something that's a waste of time right now. Um, so that's the third thing. And the fourth thing, fourth thing is I want to better improve how I'm doing observations. So I was thinking about this and observations are essentially a form of hopefully formative assessment. Yes. Um, and if we think about them in that way, we realize that they shouldn't be infrequent and high stakes but they should actually be frequent and low stakes so mm. so last year I the way I was conducting um, observations was uh, I would do one every now and then and I'd write up a big document and I'd we'd have a big conversation and and you know it's just like it's just too much and also if you do it that that infrequently no one's going to change anything um so this year I'm trying to I'm trying to build more a culture of like just popping into each other's classrooms for ten minutes kind of a thing of you know inviting people into my classroom just say come in for ten minutes see if you pick something up tell me what I can improve and I try to pop into their classrooms and you know it's it's hard with timetabling sometimes but that's something I'm trying to change for this year and I think so far it's been it's been positive. That's fantastic that and again I love that Ollie is 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 kind of practical takeaway things can I can I just ask. On that observations, because what are you under pressure from senior leadership or anything to do? Do you have like a performance management structure where you have to do one high stakes observation per year or anything? And how have you shifted 
the emphasis of how staff view observations and i guess for me i draw the parallel with tests with with kids i've tried to move tests away from being seen as forms of assessment to forms of learning i want to do the exact same thing with observations i want observations to not be you are under scrutiny but this is a collaborative learning thing so how do you manage that that trend oh look look i can't look i'd be lying if i said i've done it perfectly or that i've built the culture already but i it's definitely something that that we're working on um, one thing that I've actually found really helpful is the fact that I do come in for a short time and I leave before the lesson ends. Because what happened a couple of times last year is I would, like, obviously, I'm quite passionate about teaching and often I see things that are awesome in classrooms and I want to talk to the teacher about the end of it and be like, wow, that was great. But sometimes I see things that make me feel like that wasn't the best thing that could have happened. And if I don't yes. if I don't have a break between when I've said that and I have a conversation yeah. with someone, I do not communicate in the way that I would like to be communicating consciously. Um, so I think that break's actually good for everybody. That's fascinating. Yes, I know ex- exactly what you mean. And I'll tell you what, just... Just on this, before we move on to, to the final kind of big section, I'll tell you one thing I struggle with, Ollie, and I'd, I'd love your advice on this. So I am, certainly in the last two years, I've changed my approach to teaching, uh, largely through speaking to guests and uh, reading my reading research and so on. Um, but even before then, I'm very kind of set in my ways. So if I watch a lesson, all the time that's going through my head is, I wouldn't have done it like this, I'd have done this. I wouldn't have done it like that, I'd have probably done this. And it's very hard for me when giving feedback to not go down the lines of, if I was you, I would have done this, which isn't particularly helpful, I don't think, because teachers have different um, experiences, different approaches to things and so on. How do you, I guess empathy is the word, how do you put yourself into the shoes of the teacher you're watching and try and give them advice from that perspective, as opposed to going down the route of thinking, well, I wouldn't have done it like that, if, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, I mean, I I knocked up a template. This was based upon um, a suggestion from a a Quaker. I'm I'm a Quaker, if you know what that is anyway. It's a a religion. I'm a Quaker and one of my Quaker friends, I was asking them how they, because they used to be a teacher, how they used to give feedback. Um, And they told me they they had these three questions. So, this is what I based it on. The first first thing is, uh, here's what I thought went really well. The second thing is some points to consider. And the third thing is next time. Um, But I don't, talk through it like that like last year i made the mistake of emailing my notes to people now that is right. that is a no-go zone because you cannot <laughs> you cannot modify any and you know when yes. you, you just make shorthand notes when you're in a lesson you're like blah 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 didn't look at this student projector set up wrong whatever and they read that and you cannot control the tone at all so like that's yes. number one. do not email the notes <laughs> but the second thing is when i when i go through these things i don't say I try not to say start a point by have you thought about, for example. I try to start it with, I noticed that you did this. Um, could you tell me what you were th- what you were thinking, what you were hoping to do? Like, why did you do that? I'm I'm really curious. And then they explain it. And some and often I'll go, oh, that's actually a pretty good point. That's actually a pretty good idea. And sometimes they'll go, oh, I don't know why I did that. And um, there was this, you know, I, I I'm not really that sure. And then you say, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I, I did hear about this thing. Would you be interested right. in, in hearing? And they go, yeah, okay. And then you can kind of offer it there. Um, so, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. 
That's great. No, that's fascinating. And I know listeners will like that because observations, they regularly come up on this on this show and um, I just want them to be as useful as possible. So that that's that's fantastic, that's Ollie. Right, well, we're on to, on to the big one now and cognitive load theory. And just to set the scene for this, so um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say, like, it's like, I feel like my life's changed. I can't remember what life was like before I knew about cognitive load theory. It's been a big shift for me. Um, I started seeing it on tweets. I'm a big fan of Greg Ashman's blog. So when I knew I was interviewing Greg for the podcast, I made sure I was quizzed myself on it, but I was still way out of my depth when I was speaking to Greg. And then I've got a whole chapter on it in my book, Cognitive Load Theory. So I've, I've read everything I can. But Ollie, I was ridiculous. I can't tell you how jealous I was of you when I found out you were interviewing John Sweller. I was like, oh my God, he is like one of, up there with Willingham, uh, Dylan William, Robert Bjork for me as, as one of my all-time heroes. So... I guess I'm going to leave this fairly open. I'm going to come in with some specifics a little bit later on. But what's been, what was your first introduction to cognitive load theory? And then I want you to tell me what were your biggest takeaways from your conversation with, with John Sweller? Okay. Well, my, when I managed to work out how the heck to use Twitter, it took me about three or four attempts and maybe I'll talk to that, <laughs> talk to that a little bit later. But when I first looked at how to use it, I timed it perfectly. So I timed it pretty much like the day it started working for me. Um, Dylan William did that very famous now tweet the saying, you know, cognitive load theory, potentially, I can't, whatever it says, potentially the most important thing for teachers to know. And I was like, okay, well, I know Dylan William and I, I like his work. So I've, this is probably something I should look into. And from there, I read Sweller's um, story of a research program. And I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. I looked at lots of Michael Pershing stuff on it. Um, I saw some of your notes listen to some of your podcasts where you mentioned, I was like, okay, well, this is definitely something I can, I should look into. And then I'd, I knew Sweller was at um, UNSW and a guy who helped me out with my master's project, Andrew Martin, who was also on the, yes. uh, the podcast. He's he's down the hall from Sweller. So I, I was going on, I was going up for a conference or something. I thought um, I'll, I'll chat to these two legends in the same day. So I managed to chat to Sweller <laughs> in the other, but Sweller didn't want to be on the podcast. Um, so we did the transcript thing. And I think honestly, that was probably better anyway, because it enables people to, to process and then I, I chatted to Andrew and the other. So, takeaways. It was it was a very interesting conversation with him actually, and there there are a few things that I took away. Um, the first thing is a really good point he made about collaboration. He talked about, and it's something that I hadn't even thought about before. He talked about how how collaboration in schools can be, at times be quite contrived. He contrasted it to collaboration in the real world, where, for example, you wouldn't build a team of five, four or five people who all have the same skill set. That would be totally redundant. So asking students to you know, authentically collaborate in a classroom where they all know pretty much the same amount of stuff... Um, they don't. They're not. It's not cross-domain. Um, is is a bit contrived and 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 p potentially not that effective. Obviously, there's jigsaw method, uh, methods and stuff like that. I've never been very successful in implementing jigsaw me methods, but I'm sure some people have. But that was that was an interesting. What's, sorry, Ali. What 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 are jigsaw methods? Okay, jigsaw methods are like uh, we're going to do this activity. Okay, I'm I'm going to number for you students one two three four. All the number ones go into this corner of the room. Here's a resource. Ah, yes. Read this, and then all twos go there. And then we all come together, and you try to solve this problem. You've all got different pieces of information, and you're the jigsaw puzzles. Put them together. Um, so that's jigsaw. So, so that's kind of like artificially creating this um, this domain domain knowledge differences, I guess you could say, which could potentially work. But I've, I haven't had much luck with it, and I haven't experimented and, with and, it much. And just on that, Ali, would I be right in saying that? 
so Sweller, and I know it's hard to think uh, to to kind of put yourself in in, in Sweller's shoes, but I'm guessing he wouldn't be advocating mixed attainment classes for that same reason because it's not knowing different amounts within the same domain that's useful for collaboration. It's having different domains of knowledge that makes collaboration useful. Is that right? As yeah. far as you understand, I I don't know what Sweller would say to it, but I would say that um, like group work in uh mixed entertainment groups can be great but it's not necessarily collaboration it's probably more teaching yes yeah. yes okay got it fantastic okay more 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 takeaways on, All right. that, that's, that's a fascinating one straight away sure um the second one i want to talk about was that the line between problem solving and worked examples isn't as large as i initially thought it was and, and the way i got into this with sweller was i i asked him to reflect upon his 1982 experiment the one that all of your listeners have heard about now where we ask people to get from one number to another number using multiply by three and subtract 29 and i said what if we tweak and can that? you just tell us sorry ali for, for the people who don't know just just talk us talk us through what the kind of conclusion of that one was okay, the original so, yeah. if that's okay so basically he's, he took a whole gra- a couple of hundred uh, undergrad students i think it was and he said he gave him a few series of problems to solve and he said in each of these problems you can get from the source number to the target number by means of the operations multiply by three and subtract by 29 um and then he got them to solve it and it, lots of them can solve it and then at the end um well what they actually found was that the students solving these problems didn't help them to solve future problems of the same type even though the solution algorithm was exactly the same and in each case the solution algorithm was simply alternate the the operations first multiply by three then subtract 29 and 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 what's what i said was there's this um there are these search costs whereby students are spending so much time trying to work out how to get to the end point that they're not there's no um there's no space left in their working memory to for germane load which is the schema building load so they can't actually learn anything from the problem solving process because their brain's too full essentially um and so so what i said to swallow was what about if we tweak that experiment and what if we in each case said while you solve this i need you to write down clearly every step that you take and then at the end look back and see if you can make a generalization from this and, I, and I can really... I say, Ollie? Can I say at that point, Ollie? When I'm reading that, I was like, "Hallelujah!" Because I've been waiting for someone to ask this question ever since I read about. It. Because anytime I give a talk about cognitive load theory and I talk about the fragility of working memory, running through my head and running through people I'm talking to, his head is. But surely that's redundant because if people are writing it down, it almost writing it down almost takes it out of working memory, puts it in storage somewhere and frees up capacity to to think about things. So surely writing stuff down alleviates the fragility of working memory. So I was so pleased you asked that, Ollie. Sorry. Totally. Yeah, I was super curious as well. And I I, I literally had no idea what he was going to say. And and he actually said something which, which was surprising me a bit. He said, I don't think there's any difference between reflecting on a problem that you solved yourself and reflecting on a problem that someone else solved. So basically, what you've done in doing that, in prompting the students to do that is create a worked example. Um, mm. And I think that they could definitely learn from that. Um, and, that and he said you should run the experiment, <laughs> which, you know, which, <laughs> would, which would be super interesting. Um, so my follow-up question to that was, given that, do you think that if you had a introduced uh, worked examples in a different way to the way you did they would have been taken up differently 
in the you know mathematical education community to which his answer was pretty much a blunt no <laughs> but I honestly think that there is a lot to be gained for reframing the idea of the worked example there are so like I'm sure you've come across lots of people who you know probably take offense at much of the content of your podcast because they are so uh, into problem solving which definitely has benefits mm. and, and can be gr- a great a great way for learning all sorts of skills but I think if we reframed worked examples as reflection which is something that often people who are really into problem solving um, are also into then we could make some real headway um, into helping more people use worked examples in more effective ways in the classroom so tell me exactly what you mean by by that, Ollie. How would you see that kind of playing out in, in a lesson or a, a kind of problem-solving context? Well, I mean, so lots of people pro- love problem-solving and they're not going to stop problem-solving because you say yep. there's this bloke called John Swell who did this stuff. So <laughs> what, what you can say is how about we work together to work out the most effective way to help students reflect upon their problems and make generalizations based upon those reflections? And then you work together, like authentically work together and try to work out a good way to do that. Obviously, there's no best way, but a good way. Um, and then you say, okay, what about if they were to do that with a solution that we've already provided? Could they still do it? And, mm-hmm. and maybe the people you work with would go, oh, that'd be interesting. Let's give them that. And then you give it to them and, and lo and behold, maybe, I don't know, but maybe they, they do some good learning. And so you say, well, maybe sometimes we want the students to solve the problems and maybe sometimes we want to give them a work example and see if they can do a reflection based upon that and see if they can make the generalization there. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think there's some ground to be the ground to be taken there. And I think there's some mutual learning. It's not about like <laughs> overtaking territory. I think there's some sure. there's some legitimate mutual learning to, to happen there. And I think if we broke down some of these artificial walls, uh, you know, between the like false dichotomy between problem solving and worked examples, I think that'd be great for maths education around the world. Got it. And if I can just ask you, Ollie, and again, I'm not expecting you to have the perfect answer to this, but this is just something that's been buzzing around in my head and it's directly related to, to what you said there. Um, is about this this writing things down. So if we if we go back to the original experiment from Sweller's eighty two paper, and also we relate this to the current debate that's going on in Twitter. It's been huge in the UK at the moment around the importance of times tables. And um, they're bringing in a compulsory times table test for key stage two students. And you've got people on the one hand uh, like Joe Bowler who will be saying that fluency in times tables, whilst I don't think she would say is undesirable. It's not necessary to be a good mathematician. And she cites lots of people who don't know their times tables well and automatically and yet are still great mathematicians. And it's far more important to have a conceptual understanding of times tables. Whereas on the other hand, and I'd be more leaning towards this way, you would have uh, people who would say it is fundamentally important to know that six times seven equals 42 like that without imposing any strain on working memory so that then you can access higher level skills such as even just having fractions or higher level problem solving skills contextual and so on so my question is and again i just want your take on this if if i don't know that six times seven is 42 and i have to count up on my fingers but then i write down 42 Am I at any disadvantage there to somebody who knows six times seven is 42 like that when it comes to solving a problem where that piece of knowledge is needed? That's my big issue with cognitive load theory. I don't know the answer to that. Is it the case that as soon as I write something down, it eases the burden on my working memory? And I know I can just look at that and access that whenever I need instead of 
a lot of the examples from cognitive load theory I see almost seem to assume that you have to hold everything in working memory all at once. But surely writing things down is a, a good outlet that eases that burden. Over yeah. to you, Ollie. <laughs> yeah, well, um, obviously we, we know all about chunking and chunking is essentially exactly what you're talking about. It's about having un- larger units of information ahead or, or, or more aggregated units of information in your head that you can draw down um, from long-term memory uh, without overburdening working memory. And so I could, I would definitely say that it's not going to hurt you to know that 6 times 7 is 42. That said, I've got a confession to make. When you said, what's 6 times 7, my brain didn't automatically go 42. I, like, I also do not know my times tables that well. But I think, you know, to, the, the concept of knowing is is a is a false binary because you don't either know something or you don't know something. Um, like, when is it going to be helpful to know the factors of forty two? I don't know. Factorizing quadratics maybe. But when I, for example, when I'm doing that, I could see forty two and, like, I, maybe I don't know automatically, as automatically as you know. But I, I'm going to look at forty two and I'm going to go, oh, I'm pretty sure there's like a seven or a six or something in that, and that's probably going to help me out. It also depends upon the conditions under which the the individual solving the problems, like to what extent they can use a um a calculator and stuff. I was doing, you know, doing some of the physics tests that I've posed for my students the other day, and I did something like nine plus eleven minus three on the calculator, because I was just thinking about I was thinking about something else. And I was like, oh, I got to do this thing, and I did it on the calculator just because I didn't want to have to think about that while I was solving the problem because I was trying to hold other things in my brain. So, look, I, I think that I think that it can be. It's not going to hurt anyone. And I and I don't see there's any reason not to have these times tables tests. And I actually also think that there's an affective benefit to students knowing their times tables because they're like, I know some maths. I can do my times tables, therefore I can do some maths, therefore I can do other things. Um, so I don't think it's going to hurt. Um, and I think it is definitely beneficial in lots of scenarios, but it's obviously not the be-all and end-all. And just final one on that, all. In terms of your understanding of cognitive load theory, is it as simplistic as if you write something down, you can ease the burden on working memory to free up space to put other stuff in? Is it, is it as simple as that in, in terms of your understanding? Can paper essentially ask, uh, um, act as almost extra capacity for working memory? Or is it important that, is it not quite as clear cut as that? First of all, I'm obviously no expert in in working memory. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely a novice, and I've I've you know I've read a reasonable amount as well. I've chatted to him, and I've listened to lots of your stuff. Um, but probably we're getting some circular referencing going on as well, so that could be problematic. Also, sure. um, <laughs> but I would say, like you know, the work the working memory the working memory constraint is a constraint on what you're processing in your brain at the same time. So how effective writing something down on a piece of paper is, is dependent on at which point you need to bring that bit of information back into your brain to process it. Um, so if you can if you can do all your solving on the page, and like, this is definitely a point. I say to my students, do your working out in exactly the same way as I'm doing it now, otherwise you're going to get confused. Mm-hmm. And 100% that's true. If they don't, if they try to keep it in their heads, they are going to get confused. So... To me, that's really, really clear evidence that writing something down um, does ease the burden on working memory. And I know it for myself. When I'm reading a tricky paper, um, I will periodically stop 
and I will summarize the paragraph I just read that was tricky and I'll say, what the heck did that just say? And I'll write it out, like just in simple <laughs> words and then I'll go on to the next thing and then I'll revisit what are the previous paragraph and what the ones that before that and I can start to integrate the information um, instead of just blindly going through the paper and you know the new bit of information pushes out the old bit. Um, so I think it's got a very valu valuable play, a role to play but I'm no expert on cognitive flow theory. That's great. That's fantastic, Ollie. And um, any other takeaways from Sweller before I ask you one more question on cognitive load? Yeah. So I think that the an in, another interesting thing that Sweller came out with there were lots of surprises in this interview is that the goal-free effect is pretty much exactly the same thing as minimally guided instruction. So now this, yeah, this interests me. Will you just explain to listeners what's your understanding of the goal-free effect, Holly, for those who aren't familiar with it? So the the classic experiments that Sweller use this in, to my to my knowledge, are for example physics problems uh, with things like velocity, acceleration, things like that. I'm not sure if he used it with projectile motion, but that's an example that you could use it with. So he said, basically, got two groups, and he got the he said to the first group, I want you to calculate the highest point that this ball gets to. I, I'm pretty sure he didn't use projectile motion, but I can use this example. I want you to calculate the highest point that this ball gets to when we shoot it at 45 degrees at this velocity and it's this, um, you know, whatever. And the other group, he said, I want you to calculate as many things as you can about this scenario and then report back. And then after they did that um, and they made sure both groups um, had some feedback, they then gave them exactly they gave them both the task I want you to calculate the highest point that this ball gets to and they found that the group who that who said who had the goal free effect which was calculate as many much stuff as you can were more reliably able to calculate the maximum height of the ball even though the other group was told explicitly to do that and so they said there's something going on here where when we don't teach tell students exactly what to do For some reason, they're able to better recall the process to get to any any one of those points and better able to replicate it in a, in a subsequent test. Um, yes. And now, obviously, minimally guided instruction is the thing that many many trads or proponents of CLT would you know condemn and say minimally guided instruction is like the worst thing we can do because we're just asking students to um, you know just kind of go blindly and they don't learn anything. Um, but the question, I, essentially, I said. Uh, I said to Swell something like, is there a fundamental difference between um, this, uh, this being the goal-free effect and minimally guided destruction, instruction, uh, minimally guided destruction, uh, instruction, <laughs> and his, <laughs> some would call it that, and, and his answer was um, probably not, probably not, but what the difference is in how they're effective is the domain in which you're getting students to apply it. So what he said was... Um, minimally well the goal-free effect works in domains in which there's a constrained and finite number of things that the student can calculate when you're throwing when you're shooting a ball in the air there's only so many things you can work out one of them's the how far it goes one of them's how high it goes one's the initial starting velocity initial launch angle and while you're in the process of working all this stuff out you're going to work out how high it goes um but if you say yes. if you say you know do this project or you know interpret this interpret this piece of text or whatever there's or or you know manipulate this algebraic equation there's literally well there's close to an infinite number of manipulations you can make 
assuming you can go around in circles and it doesn't you won't necessarily get to the right answer or learn much from it um so that again that was just really interesting because two things that i would have thought initially were diametrically opposed were not you're right you're right ollie and just on that so goal free effect was one of the first clt cognitive load theory effects that i read about and i thought whoa that is that that is something that has a real kind of practical thing i can do tomorrow in, in my lessons so what we did in in my lessons and also we've done as a department is when we give kids and it's a really interesting thing i encourage listeners to try out on this when we give kids um uh, mock exams exam papers to do and some of the multi-mark three or four markers, we've made them goals. Uh, we have made them goal-free problems as opposed to goal-specific problems. So mm-hmm. instead of it being and and Sweller does um, lots with angles, um, and I've seen and Greg Ashman th- things with angles as well, where instead of find the value of angle X, it's find as many angles as you can, and it just makes the steps from where you initially are to the final goal are a lot more manageable. And as far as my reading is, because the steps are smaller, it's aid schema construction and so on, and it's more manageable for, for the kids for the kids to do. And um, but I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Ollie. That where this hasn't worked is an open-ended question where it says something along the lines of um it costs an adult three pound twenty a child two pound twenty to go to this theme park um, and then it'll be what can you work out and the problem with that as a goal free thing is there is too much there's too much you can work out and kids are going off in all kinds of different directions and if you want them to practice a specific skill and you want to take advantage of the goal-free effect, you've got to be quite clever in how you construct that question to make sure it directs them. So whilst they hit the balancing act between the goal being too far away and there being loads of potential different routes that the, the kids can take, and it's it's difficult. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. You've got to have the goal-free effect within a fairly narrow domain so that you're pretty sure the child will actually answer the question that you hoped they were going to answer while still having apparent freedom to try different things out, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and there's, 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 there's a couple of benefits to it, obviously. Like, one of the things is that obviously it helps the students get to the right answer. And I, th- I think the reason that is, is because they're not using up working memory in this means ends analysis. They're not trying to work out where they're trying to get to. They're just like, oh, I could work this thing out. Bang, bang, bang. Oh, there's one value. What could I work out next? Oh, this thing. So it's it's much more staged. Yes. But the other thing it does is it, it actually teaches them that sometimes when you don't know stuff, it's okay to kind of take a tangent and try something out and and it might actually get you closer to the to the solution and i think in terms of teaching problem solving if that's something we can do um but that is a legitimate approach to 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 problem solving well you're right Ollie, and i put that straight in my book and when i saw that in your interview with with john sweller where you asked him would it be a good um a good technique to advise kids that if they're stuck on a problem a goal specific problem to essentially cover up the specific question that's being asked and treat it essentially turn it into a goal-free problem and Sweller was well up for that wasn't he he, yeah, he was, was interesting he he was was a like, really he was good like, idea need to do that experiment for sure i thought it was great any any other takeaways from Sweller? you've you've given us some absolute crackers so far oh, look i think we've co- i think we've covered the three main things that were really 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 poignant to me from that discussion with Sweller. Okay, cool. Well, so two two quick final questions for me on cognitive load. The first would be practically, Ollie, on a day to day basis. How has your understanding of cognitive load theory changed what you do in the classroom? I th- I think it's just given me, it's given me a language for something that I probably 
intuitively new in some ways in terms of students' brains get full and it's just brought it into my consciousness more. So an example of this is I, I taught a lesson on Monday and I was observed by a colleague and it was the the mean smoothing thing. I think I mentioned it earlier on in, yes. in today's today's discussion. Um, it was a mean smoothing thing and obviously the introduction to that mean smoothing thing was mean smoothing is handy because sometimes data fluctuates and uh, if we do smoothing, that can help us to identify trends. And so I taught them how to do mean smoothing and I gave them, I told them how to do it with even number of points and an odd number of points. Um, I told them how to do the centering thing and then I left them to do some practice because we'd finished the weekly content. Um, and the the other teacher said to me, which was a great point, he said, that was good, that was good, you got through the stuff, you had time to practice, but you didn't come back to the point and help them identify trends based upon their smoothing, mm. right? And I, I, I look, the conversation was cut short because we had a meeting to go to and things like that. But what I would have said if the conversation continued was, would be, yes, that's a great point, but I felt like many of them were struggling with this this concept already and if I had have pushed on to finish the concept or closed off the lesson that would have overburdened their working memory and it would have pushed out stuff that I was trying to that I wanted them to consolidate so it's just it's just a more general awareness of of um of where my students are at in terms of their cognitive load and do you tell your kids about it do you because that's one thing i've i've started doing just bringing this language of working memory into the classroom and kids kids of all i'm talking year sevens i'm talking year 13s here they've really bought into it i, I think personally i think it's really important to communicate these kind of findings to, to students well would you agree with that Ollie? i definitely agree and i'm really excited about that and actually i mentioned earlier that the four session pd that i ran with the senior maths department last year is going to be shared with all teachers this year but that wasn't the initial goal the initial goal was to share it with all students this year and mm. and that was something leadership agreed to but then in a meeting we were saying well if we want to share it with all the students we need to get somebody implemented and you know you can't run it for all of them so we better get some teachers to do it and if we're going to do it with some teachers why don't we just do it with all the teachers so we're going to do it with all the teachers and then we'll see which ones are keen on it and then hopefully by the end of the year all students at the cl at the school will have gone through this four session kind of um, intro to CLT retrieval practice spacing interleaving and things like that um, and then we will further develop this shared language throughout the school that's f fascinating and um, my last thing on cognitive load I know I keep saying final question um, are there any remaining unanswered questions for you because as I say the big one for me was this writing down is, is there anything else still out there that um, that, that you want to know about cognitive load theory Yes, lots. But one thing I can talk about, <laughs> one thing I can talk about is um, Sweller places a lot of inf inf uh, emphasis. Sweller places a lot of emphasis on Geary's distinction between biologically primary and biologically mm. secondary knowledge. And in the interview, in fact, he said things didn't quite make sense until Geary came along with the missing puzzle piece of this biologically primarily and secondary distinction um at the time i was totally sold on this distinction and i was like you know at the end of that that section of the interview with him um on my blog i say we were talking about how at some point it seems like language acquisition is biologically primary but then maybe when you get older or you're acquiring a second language um, and you need to learn how to make this mouth sounds of learning mandarin it appears to be a biologically secondary one 
Um, Can you just, for the benefits of listeners, Ollie, what would be your understanding of the distinction between biologically primary and secondary? Okay, so David Geary came up with this idea that there are some things that we evolved to do, like learn language, talk, um, things that we have been doing for you know thousands and thousands of years. Therefore, there was a biological imperative for us to learn how to do those things. And that's why we can learn those things seemingly effortlessly because they're kind of programmed to us. Then there are these things that are called biologically secondary skills um, that we, we've kind of overlaid on our pre-existing cognitive architecture, things like writing and reading that we haven't been doing for thousands of years. And if something's biologically secondary, then we need to learn it in a different way to if it's biologically primary, which is, why we, which is essentially why we invented schools to, to furnish students with biologically secondary knowledge. Um, and, and, you know, they take it further to say things like collaboration, things like collaboration and, and working in teams, they're all biologically primary, so we actually don't have to teach any of that in schools. Um, so I was like, yep, cool, this makes perfect sense. Lots of people I respect are, are going along with this, but... I've I've become more doubtful about the clarity of this distinction as time goes on, and and this was prompted in large part by an article by uh, Sue Sue Gerard, um, who wrote, wrote a great article which we can link to. Um, but she pointed out a few things that made me think a little bit more about it. So, um, Geary talks about how biologically primary thought processes are fast, frugal, simple, and implicit, and biologically second ones are slow, effortful complex and explicit and sue points out that what is fast frugal simple and implicit for some people might be slow effortful complex and explicit for others and it actually depends on what you know so for example if we looked at a a physics student uh one of my physics students and i said to them uh all objects continue at a constant velocity unless acted upon by an unbalanced force you know one of one of newton's laws it might take them a while to kind of process that. And so it would appear to be biologically secondary. And 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 in contrast, if, if I said to them, the ball stopped moving because it stopped being pushed or something like mm. that, or the box stopped moving because it stopped being pushed, they'd be like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? Because mm. in their everyday world, that's what they say. You stop pushing a box along yes. the ground, it stops moving. Um, so they'd be like, sure. And so that would seem to be biologically primary knowledge, the second point. However, if you went to mm. uh, a physicist who's, really internalized Newton's principles and you said the ball stopped moving because it stopped being pushed it would actually be an automatic um, fast frugal simple and implicit judgment of them to say hold on <laughs> that doesn't figure right for me that doesn't make sense mm. so so to say that one knowledge is biologically programmed and one isn't based upon mm. how the level of processing that's required is perhaps not a fair distinction to make. Um, so I, th- I thought that was really in- interesting. And, and another um, thing she talked about was um, drawing. So, you know, some people are born with an innate ability to just draw in incredibly realistic detail and even to fly over a cityscape and then go home and reproduce it in exquisite detail, which if they're doing it without being taught, is that biologically primary? Because I certainly can't do that. Mm-hmm. So. So maybe there's not this distinction in, in such a way. And and similarly, you know, does does the the part of the brain that helps you recognize faces um and it can also be help you be used to recognize Pokemon uh, or anything else that has fine um fine details, uh has 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 the brain co opted the face recognizing software 
I know, I know the the computer analogy for the brain is problematic, but I'm going to use it here. <laughs> has has the brain co-opted the face recognizing software for this other process, or is it um, and it's biologically primary, or is it that um, you know these other these skills developed, this fine detail recognition software developed, and that we're just able to apply it to faces because there is a there is a difference between those things and, and there's implications for interpretations of biologically and primary and secondary uh, knowledge and learning. Oh, yeah, it's it's a minefield that. I guess my my question would be, what, oh, I don't know, from a, from a day-to-day teacher's perspective, would there be any big implication for for what you did in the classroom if based on this distinction? Would it impact what, what you did day-to-day? Yeah, I think it would because if you take Geary's proposal that things like collaboration um, or, for example, uh, if things like collaboration are biologically primary, it would mean that you don't teach it. Yes, um, yes. And, and in fact, that's what many people and proponents of, of this kind of distinction suggest, um, mm-hmm. as, as I'm sure you're aware. I think that's... Look... It's it's definitely something I I subscribed to previously, but I'm 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 not as convinced anymore. Um, if we if we do take the example of collaboration, there's a bunch of things that that we can do um, that I think can be taught, and it's important for us to teach and to learn. Um, when I when I reflect upon my own life and you know running meetings and how I used to run meetings and how I run meetings now, there's a whole heap of stuff that I learned. Like you know you should try to make eye contact with different people around the room and not just talk to one person. Or if someone hasn't talked for a while, you should say, "Oh, Craig, did you have something to say uh, in relation to this?" Um, you should keep an eye on the clock. You know all these kinds of things that you can teach that stuff. And in fact, I'm working with the student representative council at the school at the moment, and I'm kind of trying to mentor our 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 captain, our school captains, and help them develop these skills because they don't know them. And mm. I mean, and I and I I really pushed Sweller on this in the interview, and I and I got him, to, <laughs> I tried to get him to yield some <laughs> ground on it, but he, he really didn't. And what he said was, here's an example: my daughter never used to smile much, right? And he said, well, he said, maybe you can teach it, but it doesn't take much teaching. For example, my daughter mm. used to not smile much. And what I said, one day I just said, you need to smile more. People think you're really glum. And that's all it took, you know? She just started yeah. smiling. And, and I thought, okay, but there are things that we all do in meetings, for example. Like sometimes I get frustrated and I, and I say things in ways that I don't mean to say. And for me to change that, for me to learn how to better collaborate, I actually need to train. I need to like sit in my Quaker meeting and I need to ref- yes. reflect upon what happened and I need to come up with processes or phrases or mantras that I use when I get frustrated and I need to get better at identifying when I'm frustrated. And and all those things are all those things can be taught and can be learned. So I I think that's one one clear thing um, that can kind of come out of whether or not you take this um, distinction at face value and you know we could extend that to things like critical thinking as, as well like people I'll tell you what oh, sorry. yeah sure no no I've probably I've probably made it made enough points on that so you go no well what, what interests me about that Ollie and again I know I keep saying we'll move from cognitive load theory but I'm fascinated by this is I hope this comes out the right way because it's just spinning through my head um, at the moment so let, well, let might me try be wrong. Best I, on this it one. happens all the time so go for it <laughs> um, so your argument there which I agree with about the 
you're not entirely convinced by this distinction between biologically primary and biologically secondary isn't the is an argument for more direct instruction and more teaching as opposed to some people's who wouldn't agree with this distinction who would be of the opinion that you can just kids can teach themselves maths because we've naturally evolved to 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 understand maths and so on so in my reading of it the people who um propose inquiry and minimally guided instructions for uh, forms of instruction are of the opinion that kids can kind of not it sounds bad not magically learn this maths but kind of teach it themselves relatively easily as opposed to um proponents uh, of cognitive load theory say no actually direct instruction is needed so if you're not happy with the distinction between biologically primary and secondary you're swaying more from my understanding of your argument towards more stuff should be taught by direct instruction well would that be right that's interesting because i i haven't really thought about it in terms of that but i guess i guess i feel like probably from the dis- the discussions i've been involved in and, and i've been privy to the the most dangerous outcomes of the acceptance of the distinction from my point of view are that we shouldn't teach all this stuff that i actually think is important and can yes. be supported therefore that's what my brain's gone to in terms of in terms of responding to that i also i but i do think there are thing there are there is value in much of what is said on the other side as well in terms of students actually need to like authentically and naturally um, or it can be helpful for them to interact with their environment in order to build a basis for later uh, explicit instruction for example like you know the fact that students these young people these days will often use like a dice app instead of dice and it like rolls the dice and it shows up the number and so they don't actually have that hundreds of addition times of addition practice yes. throughout their childhood or students from low SES um, situations in which you know I teach lots and they probably haven't counted to 100 many times in their life right because their parents never counted to 100 with them yeah. and like yeah. you're expecting them to count by 10s now and they've never practiced counting to 100 um, or just counting you know counting seagulls or whatever like I think that there's there's an interaction between what happens in the home life, which we would call bi- biologically primary, and what happens in school, which we would call biologically secondary. That that has an effect as well. That's fascinating, though. Fascinating, Ollie. Right, time for some reflections now. Um, so first thing I want to say, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast. Um, and the question I'm going to ask you is, if someone was to listen to one episode of your podcast, what would you recommend? But I'm going to come straight in with a recommendation myself. Go on, then. Your interview with Andrew Martin, I thought was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I'm, I'll link to it in the show notes. But for me, that was, I love his paper. It's, I think it's load reduction model. I absolutely love that. Um, just again bringing in aspects of cognitive load theory direct instruction he kind of uh, motivation it was absolutely fascinating so i thought that was a wonderful interview i'd recommend everybody uh, listen to that one but do, do you have a favorite uh, if, if somebody was to, to dive straight in and go for one episode where, where should they kick off i think that there's much to be said for diversity of opinion and i and i in relation to what lots of what I was saying previously about how if I was engaged with the younger years, I'd be interested in uh, working on students expressing themselves and, and oracy and things like that. And in also relation to probably, this is an idea of like balancing the listening of your listeners because I'm sure many people have been greatly swayed by the all the all the fantastic information that's been presented in your podcast. I think probably the the podcasts of mine that got me most excited whilst also being at the other end of the spectrum was my discussion with James Mannion. 
Um, mm. Did you did you have did you manage to catch that one? Yeah, I have listened to that one. Yes, yeah, yeah. fascinating. I, it's it's really interesting because James, you know, he comes mm. from the opposite end, and he and he has had yeah. he has had beefs. I mean, he's a gentle soul, but other people have had beefs with him um, in terms of. Um, his approach to teaching and and have kind of torn him down at times, but I think there's a lot to be said, and I and I have very little doubt that some magic happened at that school when they were when they were doing that yes. program for those few yes. years, and I, I really like I hope that as my teaching career goes on, I can learn more about how to make that magic ha- magic happen for my own students because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm betting down this explicit instruction explicit instruction stuff pretty well but there I know there's more out there to teaching um, whilst this is very fulfilling and enjoyable um, and I feel like that's the direction that maybe some of that magic is yeah I, I agree Ollie. I have a similar experience when I interviewed Andrew Blair who's uh, from the Inquirer Maths website I, I interviewed him at a point where I was sold on explicit instruction or direct instruction and he challenged me big time on it and my head was spinning at the end of that and yeah you, you're absolutely right that it's all well and good having a chat with someone who thinks exactly the same way, way as you do, but to really test your opinions and test your beliefs, it's, it's great to be challenged, absolutely. Um, is there anyone that you really want to interview, um, Ollie, on there that you've, you've kind of got, got in your sights? Who's your, who's your dream guest? Oh, look, you've already interviewed them all, Craig. You haven't left me much to work with. <laughs> uh, Willingham, I mean, Willingham's up there for me. I, yeah. I, I'd love to get Willingham. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the time difference for me and Willingham is pretty tricky. Um, I almost ha- I almost managed to tee him up, but it fell through. And also, he's, he you know he he looks after his daughter a lot, so that that makes yeah. his his um his time pretty precious. Um, I'm at, I've got Hattie lined up for a couple of weeks, John Hattie, which oh, many people have, nice. have heard of. So um, next week, actually, we're doing a critique of meta analyses with uh, Adrian Simpson from Durham University. Uh, I believe it is, and then two months after that, Hattie's going to come in with a follow-up to that and argue from the other side. So that that's going to be really interesting. That'll be great, and I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, like, I mean, I'm I'm re- I'm. Look, there's just so many, there's so many things, Craig, to explore in the world of education. And look, some 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 stuff I'd like to do pretty soon is some stuff on um, education of um, First Nations people here in Australia the the indigenous oh. population and how things are going there how things are tracking and and whether we're doing a good job of closing the gap and whether we can do a better job and things like that and i think there's heaps of well-being stuff i'd like to explore but um it's never ending and and it's it's probably the best hobby probably the best hobby in the world as i'm sure you could agree i'd agree I'd agree. Well, keep doing them, Ollie. They're, they're absolutely superb. We'll put, put links to those in the show notes. Um, a couple of other ones from me. Um, like me, you're pretty obsessed. I'm going to use the word obsessed. Obsessed with educational research. And 100%. I like the way that you... you. Um, I think you've been in a similar battle with me just from reading your tweets and your blog posts between kind of explicit instruction versus less minimally guided. And mm-hmm. you, you're often kind of quoting different papers and so on. I wonder... If there's been, you don't have to pick a single piece, but it, has there been a piece of research that's kind of been a big game changer for you, kind of most influenced your, your, your approach to teaching? I think there's one that inf- has influenced the way that I approach research or looking at research more generally. And, and look, it's impossible for me to pick any one article that related to education because obviously the the strength is in piecing the pieces of the puzzle together yes. that's that's the fun part not not any single article um but have you heard of the marshmallow experiment 
I have, yes. yes yeah. I have. So for but again, please, please tell listeners about it. So for listeners, yeah, the marshmallow experiment is essentially an experiment in which they took young people, I don't know, they were young, like maybe four or something, and they gave them a marshmallow. They put a set of marshmallow in front of them in a, in a room, the experiment, and they said, all right, I just have to do something outside the room for a moment. Um, I, I'm going to come back in a minute, and if you can eat the marshmallow if you want, but if you don't eat the marshmallow, I'll give you another marshmallow, and you can have two marshmallows when I come back. And so they went out, and then they did this... They, they recorded students' results. Then my understanding is they did this longitudinal study and they looked at the students, you know, 20, 30 years later and they said, was there any impact on this kind of self-control thing yeah. um, later on? And what they found was there was, you know, a positive correlation between students who appeared to have high levels of self-control um, and those who were doing better financially and, and in life upon multiple measures um, later on. Now, have you heard about the follow-up study? No, I don't think so. Yeah, because here's the kicker. What they did was they actually looked at... Some researchers went, don't quite believe in this. I'm going to you know, I'm gonna explore this yeah. a little bit more. And they went back and they actually looked at the socioeconomic status of the young people. And they right. found that there was a relationship. Look, it might have been socioeconomic status, but the, the, the really important thing was they looked at how reliable... Um, that or how predictable and reliable each of those young persons' worlds was. And what they found out was that young people who lived in a stable home environment understood that if some an older person said to them, I will come back and I will give you another one, they believed them and they believed them enough to modify their behavior to get the two marshmallows. The, the young people who lived in an unpredictable home environment said, well, look, this is a 50-50, you know, this is a gamble. When yeah, they come back, yeah, yeah, maybe that. they'll give me another marshmallow. Maybe they'll eat the marshmallow themselves. I don't know. I'm just going to I'm just yes. going to bank this one, you know. Bird in the hand yeah, better than yeah, two yeah, in the bush. Yeah. And and so it was actually more of a correlation between um individuals' home environments and the way they interacted with the world. So, you know, what's the lesson to take from the marshmallow test? I think I think the lesson is it's usually more complicated than it appears at first mm-hmm. at first glance and and for me that's just a really valuable kind of approach or mindset to take into reading and learning about things such as cognitive load theory um, and all the other great things we've been talking about today. That's a great. That's it. I did. I didn't realize that about the marshmallow test. That's fa- that's absolutely fascinating, that, Ollie. That's it is. Brilliant, it is. And so many people have heard about the marshmallow test, and it's mm. it's really prevalent in popular culture. You know, you go to business conferences yeah, yeah, and people yeah. are talking about it, but very few people know about the follow up test. And it it has a lot to say. It has a lot to say, and a lot of lessons from it. That's great, that all. That's fantastic. A um, couple more questions. Um, if you were to give a book as a gift to a teacher, what book would you choose, and why? Great question. Um, I would definitely give them Daniel Willingham's book, <laughs> Why Students Don't Like School. Um, if I've been listening to your podcast, they probably know all of it, all of it already, or much of it already. But Dan Willingham is such an incredible writer, um, and also this was really a book that you know cha- absolutely changed my life. I started reading it when I was learning Mandarin, um, and I was learning Mandarin at the same time as learning um, studying my final economics course at uni. And before this point, I basically thought that knowledge was a waste of time. Um, mm. I remember thinking, why the heck would I sit in history and memorize a whole heap of dates? Um, how is that ever going to help me in my life? But by reading this book, I realized that actually 
every little bit, you know, knowledge is like money. The more you have, the easier it is to accumulate it. And the more dates in history I know, the easier it is for me to attach a new date that I hear to that. And I just build this massive mm. web of knowledge in my brain. So that was just one takeaway. But pretty much, pretty much every most of the key things that we've talked about today are covered in William's book and are covered with a really clear illustrative examples and it's so readable and it's so digestible um, and I just you know I think it's I think it's a one-stop shop and it should it should be mandatory reading in, in teacher education training I completely agree Ali. completely agree fantastic answer last couple from me if you could travel back in time and speak to the younger you at the start of your teaching career what advice would you have for them um, like like I said earlier, for me, it's about the process of learning that I love. Uh, it's not about the destination, so I wouldn't tell them anything. Go, oh, I like that. That's yeah, very yeah, very wise. Um, a podcast I'm going to release probably just before this. Anne Watson and John Mason, two mathematical heroes. Anne Watson said something very, very, uh, very similar to that. I think it's yeah, very wise words. And um, last question for me, Ollie. Where next? Where, where do you hope to take your teaching in the future? What what's on the horizon? Mm, who knows? Um, <laughs> but but seriously, I, look, I'm really, and I alluded to it earlier, I'm really interested in the ways that our assessments shape our teaching and shape the way that we value different things within education systems. You know, all this stuff about CLT and worked examples and what works better and what's more effective instruction, it's all based upon the measure at the end of a pencil and paper test and whether students can do that. Mm. And maybe we would find that if we were actually measuring um, and a student's ability to articulate something, a student's ability to transfer something from one concept to another, a stu- student's ability to solve a problem in a team. Maybe if we changed our measures, we'd actually change the the means at, by which to get to those ends is different. And so, yeah, like, I mean, you, we've got good arts law, which is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be, to be a good measure. And also, um, there's a great... Um, there's a great phrase which is the assess um, the assessment tail wags the curriculum dog and I think you know <laughs> I like that I don't, I, I don't think much could be truer and and the whole way that I designed the process with the end in mind for my um, year 12 maths further students perfectly illustrates that fact you know I've I've been able to um, design an instructional process that ostensibly had great results uh, upon this measure but how many of my students, speaking honestly and humbly, how many of them can still will be able to like take away much from that course that they can apply in their real lives or or even within their uni courses? Um, if they've if I've given them a template to interpret the the slope of a line, does that does that mean that they can <laughs> interpret the slope of a line and fundamentally understand what gradient means, or does it mean that they mm-hmm. can get full marks on the test, which they can definitely do? And I I think. <laughs> I think in many ways we, we bark up the wrong tree sometimes. So I'm I'm keen to work out how we can better shape assessments to to have more comprehensive um, and interesting and stimulating teaching and learning. That's great, great answer, great answer, Ali. Yeah, right. and, well, and we, so we, I'll just I'll just quickly sorry, say there there are some please. there are some schools who are who are doing this kind of thing. Um, I know there's a school in Australia. Or in Melbourne called Templestowe. I don't know if you've if you've heard about that, but every student has an individualized learning plan, and they're you know they're they're making real leaps and bounds, and students seem to love it. So I'd love to explore in more detail um, what they do, and 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 another concrete way that I'm trying to do that this year is is with um introducing oral components. So in my year twelve physics prac write up, for example, um, I'm doing a 
half-time mark and I'm getting them to act on that feedback and then the last assessment I'm just going to get together with each student have a chat with them and, and ask them questions about their paper and see to what extent they can understand they, they can articulate what they what they understand um, obviously there's some there's challenges to that and I have to learn how to do that sensitively and and well um, but if there's any listeners listeners out there who know much about um, oral exams or things like that I'd love to hear from them because I'd love love to know how to do it well Fantastic. Superb, Ollie. Right, we are at the time of the show where it's your big three. So what three websites, blog posts, or whatever you want would you direct listeners to? And as we always do, we'll put those in the show notes. Um, well, your podcast, Mr. Yeah. Barton, definitely. But I'm, and again, that's a circular reference, and I'm sure everyone's already listening to, to all of the episodes. Um, I honestly think that the, the, the thing that most enriches my my informational diet is Twitter. Um, hands down, like I, I, I mandate to myself that I spend half an hour on Twitter five days a week and I track that in a habit tracker and if I don't do it, then I don't do it. But anyway, it helps me. I think it's important. Um, and I think that one of the best things teachers can do is to get on Twitter. I don't know what percentage of your, um, your listenership are on Twitter, but I know that I had a lot of trouble uh, getting the hang of it and getting into it, mm-hmm. and it was actually it was actually my girlfriend Holly who helped me to get onto it properly. And her advice was, pick one person and follow them, and just follow them for a while, and just every day check in and see what they've posted. The other thing is, don't use the Twitter app; use the third party app that actually manages the feed better. Because Twitter, um, Twitter, you know, you don't know where you're up to on the feed, and you kind of lose a place. But I use an app called Phoenix. But if you just Google Twitter app, um, you'll find anything. And that can help you to keep track of where you're on your feed and you can customize it and that makes it a lot easier to keep up to date and know where you're at. Um, and just and just work from there. Pick one person who you think you're going to follow. And f- for me, I mean, f- I started off following the Teachers Education Review, which is an Australian podcast on education. Um, but probably my favorite Twitter person would have to be Harry Fletcher Wood. So if people are out there mm-hmm. and they're wondering... Who, who might be a good person to start with. Um, this is for people like me who aren't super in, who are into maths education but are more interested in the learning process more generally. Harry just reads so widely and puts so much time into thinking, reflecting and summarizing and just doing high quality tweets. Um, it's great. And also, the way he engages in discussions on Twitter is very respectful with a very open mind and oftentimes mm. Twitter can move away from that. So I think in terms of the quality of the information that he puts out there um as well as the way that he does it like hands down at the moment my favorite twitter can i just ask before you do your second of your big three there uh-huh. all, um, if you've got your half hour that you're going to spend on twitter what what does that half hour look like are you kind of just browsing up and down your timeline or are you going in to say looking what harry's posted recently or dylan or whatever how do you spend that half hour so i've i've got a favorites list in my third party party twitter app and I'm I'm pretty ruthless. Like if someone tweets three things about their cat, um, un- <laughs> un- unless they're Linda Graham, I, I, I tolerate her. She was one of my podcast yeah. guests, and I, I tolerate her cat tweets. But if anyone posts three things about their cat, they're gone. They're out of there. Right. Um, and yeah, I'm yeah I'm really ruthless about that. And so what I'll do is I'll log on. Um, I will if there's more than 150 tweets, I'll scroll to the 150th, and I will just work my way. Um, through from 150 right. ago to, to most recent. 
sometimes I get through all 150. Sometimes I get I usually get through only about 50 of them. So I'm usually about a day day behind the Twitter conversation, but that's fine. It's a slow conversation. It's a good conversation. Um, and then I'll just read read things. If it's a in depth paper, I'll usually just email that to myself because that's going to be too much for me to cover in yes. half an hour. But if it's a blog post, I'll I'll often jump in, read it. If it's good, I'll finish it, take some screenshots, and quickly do a do a retweet. Uh, if it's if it's not stimulating me, I'll just jump straight out of it and keep keep going through my feed. So that's yeah. how I deal with it. How about you? But it's, well, I, I'm, I need to get better. I'll leave. tell you what I'm bad at, and I'm really, really bad at this. But I thought it was a brilliant system. Do you, do you know Instapaper? Have you heard of that? App? I do Instapaper. not. No. There, there's, there'll be loads of similar ones, but basically, it's, it's, it's a brilliant idea. But I use it terribly. It can take um, any web article or blog post or anything like that, and if you hit Instapaper, it essentially strips out all the um, any advertising or banners, and it just leaves you in a beautifully formatted text article in whatever font that you've got it set as default. And it's supposed to be like a really pleasant reading experience, and it's, it's fantastic. And you can put things in folders and so on. And I've set it up on my phone, iPad, everywhere. So anytime I read something, whether it's a newspaper article, blog post, hit Instapaper, and I know it's going to go somewhere nice. But the problem is, I hit Instapaper, and I never flip and read the things. This is the problem. So throughout the week. I'm Instapaper yeah. and things yeah. left, right, and center. And it gets to Sunday, and I've about 95 things in Instapaper, and it's too much. I, I know. Just can't, can't even get started. So I think I'll forget that. I'll, I'll do it again next week. So I'm loving the fact that you're, you're kind of instant, right? If you see a blog post, you're reading it there and then. Um, and kind of de-actioning it there, and I think that I think that's good Twitter practice. That whereas I'm I'm always thinking of this utopian future where I'll have bags of time to sit down and fully process things, but it obviously it, it never materializes. So that that's where I'm going wrong, Ollie. Anyway, totally. And 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 what I would call your Insta paper list is a, is essentially a a list of guilt. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's you're, exactly. It. You're that's accumulating exactly it. Yeah, a list of guilt, correct. and it and it means that you you struggle to keep up with it, and you just start feeling bad yeah. about it. So yeah. So yeah, I just try to deal with it there and then, and I and I accept, which has been hard for me to come to, that I'm gonna miss some good stuff. I'm I'm definitely yeah. gonna miss so much yeah. gold, but but ultimately it's got to be sustainable, and 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 if it's yes. you know I'll I'll come across it at some point if it's if if it's important enough, and that actually happens. Like I'll often I'll often scroll past posts, tweets, and not read them and it'd be like oh this yep. person retweeted this article okay I'm not that interested this person retweeted another yep. third person oh I actually really respect what this person retweets and I'm okay yeah. I'm going to have a read of this article and so if it's if it's good enough it'll come back anyway yeah that's good good advice okay what about the big three number two Ollie um well I mean I'll just quickly add to the to the first thing hmm. I, I mentioned I mentioned during the podcast that I I compile a list of of my favorite treats, tweets from the week. So if any listens, listeners are interested in that, they can just jump onto ollielover.com um, and sign up for the Weekly Digest and they'll get on Friday ready for Saturday and Sunday. They'll get a compilation of usually about 10 tweets that I found really stimulating throughout the week. So that's another way to access it. The second book, look, I'm just going to go back to Dan Willingham, even though it's it's probably, it's got to be the most the most uh, suggested uh, one out of all your, all, all your big threes. Um, and number three? Yes. Number three, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, uh, I'm gonna go, go a bit outside the ballpark here and and quote the 1936 classic, "How to Win Friends and Influence People." Oh, nice. <laughs> Honestly, well, I think most people have heard of the title, and I heard of the title, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but then again, my girlfriend, <laughs> my girlfriend Holly read it, and she was like, 
this is amazing. <laughs> this book is actually amazing. And it, it's old-fashioned. It's sexist. Everything's about dudes. Um, <laughs> the, the anecdotes are at times incredibly painful, and, and you can just tell he made them up. Um, but the lessons within it are absolutely gold. And the way I would, I would suggest that, you know, for any, for any person in a leadership role or schools or, like, you know, teaching anything, um, the way I would suggest that you consume it is via audiobook because you're going to get tied down um, if you try to read it, or I did anyway. Um, and so in between, you know, Mr. Barton podcast when we've been waiting a couple of weeks and, and we're waiting for something to listen to, and this is literally, literally what I do, just had a bit, a bit more of how to win friends and influence people. You don't have to listen to it in one go. It can be over a year or whatever, and there will be nuggets and it will stimulate your thinking every time you listen to some of it. That's great. Give, give us, can you give us one nugget from it, Ali? Anything that's that's kind of changed your your way of thinking or acting? Yeah, totally. I mean, I used I used well uh, two of the things I've tried to build into my daily routine for this year. So one of the principles is um, don't criticize, condemn, or complain. So I'm just working really hard this year to not say a bad thing about anything or complain. And every night I have like a Google doc that I log into and I'm like, did I criticize, condemn or complain anything about anything? And then I have to like hold myself to account. And the other, the second thing is, um, uh, oh, be lavish in your praise and hearty in your approbations. So basically just like tell people when you appreciate their stuff. And Craig, this is something that you do so well and it's why it's a big reason why you're such a likable guy. You're always complimenting your guests and saying all the great <laughs> things that you think they do and highlighting and say, that's such a great idea, you know? And what that does is it really builds a positive rapport and it, and, and it does such a good job. And it's and it's especially relevant in the classroom. So that's, again, on they're, they're the two things this year that I'm trying to build as habits and I'll check in on that second thing as well um, every day. And, and I think it makes a massive difference in the classroom. When you go up to a student and say, I really appreciated how you paid extra attention in today's lesson. You know, they leave the class beaming and it's just like, you know, teacher brownie points in the bank that you can draw on later on. Um, and then Absolutely. just a, as just a real quick takeaway is something I used in today's interview. Um, the phrase, you know, I, like, sorry, I, I could be wrong. It happens all the time. Uh, you know, just that kind of stuff. Like these little throwaway phrases that just, that are just really helpful for moving conversations forwards and, and, and building positive relationships. So, yeah, uh, how to win friends and influence people. That's great. That, what a fantastic lesson. There'll be links to all those in the show notes. And I'm guessing the show notes for this episode are going to be pretty long, Ollie, because we've, we've referenced things left, right, and center. Mm. So definitely visit the podcast page, and hopefully we'll uh, have everything on there. If there's something we've spoke about that hasn't been linked, just drop me and Ollie, me or Ollie a message, and we'll, uh, we'll update the show notes um, constantly to make sure everything we've spoke about is on there. Because... I think we, we haven't done the final edit of this, obviously, but this could be the longest one ever, I think, Ollie. Um, the longest wow. interview, beating Danny, beating Danny Quinn's one. Wow. But I'll tell you what, I'm not just saying this. Time has flown by for me. I am feeling revitalized, energized. I could easily speak to you for another hour because it's it's just been absolutely fascinating. I've loved... Well, first off, just to say thank you for your time, Ollie, because I know what, what time is it over, over in Oz now? What time are we on? I've got nine minutes till my bedtime. <laughs> that's nice and it's bright and early on a, on a snowy day here in the uk we've we've spoke for well we've, we've been speaking almost four hours um in total and uh, now and it's just been yeah it's been a revelation i've i've loved the structure you've put into place with your your lessons one of the most re requested things on this podcast is always practical takeaways and also we've had 
what what does post 16 teaching look like because I think, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I've been guilty in the past of I put a lot of thought into how my uh, year seven to 11 lessons look like. And any of the lessons, I almost treat them as, oh, they're different kids. These are almost adults. We can, I can just kind of chat to them. They'll figure it out. But, you know, you've put, got a system in place there. You've really thought about how to deliver this course. And I know I'm going to learn so much for that. So thank, thank you for that. Um, running in a maths department, <laughs> I love them. You'll, you'll have to send me those questions that you ask people um, when those four questions for, from the um, PD sessions, because they were fantastic, Ollie, because there's a danger that, and I've heard this from heads of departments I've interviewed, that you can go in, particularly as a new head of department, and it can like the barriers can be up from staff straight away. It can be right. What's he going to say? Is what's he going to do? Chuck out everything we've used to do and bring in all these new ideas. It's too much. But you found a really clever way of making people feel included in it and also harnessing their expertise. So I thought that was fascinating. I love that. And then of course cognitive load theory because I think we've been on a similar journey with it. And. Um, we're at a similar level and you're now starting to question things that I'm questioning as well. And for me, that's just been so, so useful. So thanks for that, Ollie. Thanks for your podcast. Um, it, is, it is an absolute delight for me to listen to it because you have some fantastic guests on there. You do a hell of a lot of research for it. You're very well informed and they're just they're, they're a brilliant lesson. And also, it sounds like I'm giving out a load of thank yous, but they're all well earned. Your Twitter Digest summaries are brilliant as well. Um, I have two things that I look forward to on the weekend. I like Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday and I like your Twitter Digest. They're just great because it it means that I can summarize, I can focus in on exactly the areas that interest me and they tend to be areas that interest you as well. So thank you for everything, Ollie. Keep doing what you're doing and I hope we get to talk again some point in the future because it's been an absolute pleasure for me. Thanks, Craig. It's It's been an absolute pleasure for me too and it's fantastic to be able to geek out with someone for four hours about education because it's it's not that often that you actually find someone who's as obsessed as you and I are with with teaching and learning so I mean you know across the seas it's it's been a pleasure and again and thanks for all the great work you do um, because your podcast is also an incredibly valuable learning resource for me and I feel like we're kind of yeah as you said we're on on parallel paths um, and it's great to share it with you that's great cheers Ollie see you mate So there you have it. You have made it through the longest ever interview on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. And there it was, my conversation with Ollie Lovell. But I hope you agree with me that there was not much filler in there whatsoever. And as I said to Ollie at the end, I could have spoken to him all day. I think he's a fascinating character. I love the way he thinks. I love the way he analyzes stuff. It reminds me um, a lot um, of Chris Bolton, the way he doesn't take things on face value, but he also wants to think of practical ways to incorporate research and the things he learns into his teaching. So I, I found it absolutely fascinating and I strongly advise you to check out Ollie's blog, follow him on Twitter and listen to the Education Research Reading Room podcast if you want to hear more from Ollie. Now, the takeaway. So after the conversation, I did what I always did after these thought-provoking podcasts and I went for a walk and I tried to organise my thoughts because there was so much in there 
and there's a chance that you can get overwhelmed. And I thought, no, I need some simple, actionable, practical things that I can take away, bring into my teaching straight away, and then also incorporate into my wider practices further down the line. So I've come up with six things. So the first, number one, writing a schema work. Now, if you have been lucky enough to hear uh, Mark McCourt speak in the last couple of years, and of course he was a guest on this podcast, and hopefully a future guest when he makes his uh, his return to the show, he, he always makes the point that every year people seem to be rewriting their own schemes of work. And this is completely true. And in fact, this coming year, as soon as uh, Year 11s go and A-levels uh, kids go, and it's a little bit more quieter, myself and a couple of colleagues are going to sit down and we are going to rewrite our Year 7 and 8 scheme of work. And it's it's almost like a never-ending process. And those of you who followed uh, my blog post from, I think, 2014, I, I talked about how um, I wrote our scheme of work back then. And I'm going to do it completely differently this time. And I'll, I'll probably try to document the, to document the process. But the point I want to make here is that I learned a lot from what Ollie was saying when he was talking about planning out his program in, uh, of instruction. I used to think a scheme of work was just a, a case of getting the topics in the right order and then chucking a load of fancy resources on the secure shared area. But of course it's not. Um, the order's crucial, and especially if you're wanting to uh, follow a mastery approach or take full advantage of interleaving, where uh, current topics that you're studying can easily be integrated with prior topics to keep things fre fresh in memory. So order is crucial. Resources are important, but I think you can have too many resources. I've certainly been guilty of this in the past, and now I'm very, very picky on the resources that I use. But what I liked about Ollie is, did you notice how the emphasis wasn't much about that? It was more about the, the kind of regular day-to-day -day things in the structure of the lesson and the structure of the year. So Ollie built in regular retrieval practice, and that needs thinking about. How are we going to incorporate that into our scheme of work? Because I'm convinced it's one of the most important things, space learning, interleaving. How are we going to incorporate that into our scheme of work on a daily basis? Um, student accountability. How are we going to make students accountable for their learning, invest more into their learning, be more informed about their learning? And it's all well and good saying, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make them more accountable. Um, I'm going to build an opportunity for retrieval practice. But it reminds me of something John Mason said uh, when I interviewed him and um, Alan Watson on the previous podcast. You've got to visualize it. It's no good saying things. What does it actually look like? Can you visualize what it's going to look like for students to get this regular retrieval practice? practice. Practically, what's it going to look like? Are you going to have time for the students to do it? How are the students going to respond? How are they going to record it? And so on. So in the build-up to writing this schema work, I've got a couple of months before I have to properly start it. I'm going to be doing a lot of visualizing and I'm going to be using Ollie's framework for the elements that he's incorporated into his program of instruction to think what's going to be suitable for mine. And I'm flipping looking forward to it, I can tell you. Right, that's number one. Number two is directly related to that and that's routines. I'm a little bit obsessed by routines. Um, off air, myself and Ollie talked about our love of Tim Ferriss, the Tim Ferriss podcast and, he, and his books and his blog posts. Routines for Tim uh, are absolutely fundamentally important. Um, and I think they're crucial for teachers and for students. Getting into routines, and this could be routines for the lesson structure itself, or it can be routines for what happens when the kids are entering the room or leaving the room, or it can be routines based on how kids respond to a certain kind of code word. Like I, I sometimes say, right, diagnostic questions, and kids know exactly that that means pen down, close the books, absolute science, look at the board. 
Routines are absolutely crucial for two things, successful running of lessons and also I think effective learning. They're good for me because it's less for me to think about. And Ollie made a wonderful point here. Routines really come into their own when you're not on top form. When you're having a bad day, you're knackered, you're grumpy, something's happened out of school. If you have a routine that your lessons always follow the same structure, it means that you have less to think about. So your depleted mental energy can be spent on more important things. But also I think routines are great for kids. Again, it just means that there's less unimportant stuff for them to think about. And you know I'm a great believer in, uh, in cognitive load theory and the limits of working memory. I don't want working memory clogged up with, right, what do I need to do next? What does he mean? What's he saying? What's the next part of the lesson? I want them thinking about the learning. And I found that, that kids like it. Kids like a routine. And the kind of flip side of it is, it means that when you do change the structure of a lesson, that surprise becomes more impactful and memorable. So I'm a great believer in routines and structure, low stakes quizzes, diagnostic questions, uh, silent teacher, example problem pair, intelligent practice, and so on. All the things I talk about in my book. Next one, number three, this is a quickie, collecting in quizzes. I thought this was great. Low stakes quizzes, um, you'll have heard me talk about this and if you've read the book, you'll know I do one every single lesson, every single day with every single class. Kids market themselves, I'm sticking with that. But I just let the kids keep hold of it and put it in their, reflect, um, in their folders so they've got it to reflect on later. But I'm not gonna do that anymore, I'm gonna collect them in. I'm not gonna do anything with the quizzes when I collect them in, I'll probably have a little glance over them. But I loved what Ollie says, kids take it more seriously when, you, when they know you're gonna collect something in. And yet there's no extra effort for the teacher, I'm not doing any marking or anything like that, so it's a win-win situation. So I'm gonna be collecting in low stakes quizzes, I thought that was great. Number four, head of department. Um, I just love interviewing heads of department. It started years ago when I used to do the Tez Maths podcast when I interviewed Andrew Blair and I put that out as an archive because I thought he was wonderful at the way Andrew spoke about heads of department. And since then I've spoke to uh, Danny Quinn. Um, I have spoke to um, Amir in the last episode. I, I like learning about how heads of department run things. And I just loved what Ollie said about the way he introduces himself to the department with those three questions. And I've put the three questions in the show notes, but I'm just gonna read them out now. Imagine uh, you're a member of the department and a new head of department joins and you're a bit nervous, a bit apprehensive, thinking what the flipping X are you gonna bring in here, all these new ideas. And then he sits you down for a meeting and he asks you these three questions. Is there anything that you think worked particularly well in your teaching or classes this year that you think the rest of the team could benefit from hearing about? If you magically had an extra three hours per week to improve your teaching, what would you like to spend it on? And what would you most like to learn about in order to improve your teaching this coming year? I think they're fantastic. And I like the idea that we kind of came up with of sending those out in advance, maybe give, give staff a couple of days to think about it so that they're gonna come back with really, really, really good ideas. So I thought that was great. And also number five is a quick one as well, departmental meetings. I'm always on the lookout for ways to make departmental meetings more effective. And I talk a lot about this in workshops and in my book on the chapter on diagnostic questions, I talk about how getting into a routine of writing diagnostic questions together, swapping them in pairs with colleagues, commenting and so on, I think is a really effective thing for people to do, for colleagues to do in, in maths department meetings. <clears throat> but I loved Ollie's suggestion. Start with what you're grateful for. I love that. I absolutely love that. And the reason I love it is because um, I've, it's a practice I've adopted myself, kind of independent of this podcast. Um, something I read about um, in Richard Wiseman's book, 59 Seconds, 
And a routine I do every single night before I go to bed is I write down five things I'm thankful for. They could be very, very small things. They could be very big things. Um, and it's just, it's just been a game changer for me. It's, it's it just kind of helps me just realize what's important, how lucky I am. And it just helps me go to bed in a really positive state of mind and, and wake up really positive and ready for the next day. And I think there's a danger that departmental meetings can get bogged down in moaning and admin and so on. And of course, stuff like that has to happen. But starting with something positive, give me one thing you're grateful for. And it's just, I just think that's brilliant. So that's something I'm definitely going to be looking to bring in. I really like that. And finally, the big one. I teased at the start of the show that um, there was one absolute game changer that, uh, that Ollie uh, shared. And it'll be no surprise because I banged on about it loads in the interview. And that's these reflections. Um, I just think this is such a simple and such an effective idea. So um, I, I told Karen, um, my head of department, and, and Erica, who's kind of uh, has responsibilities for the sixth form, about this. And hopefully we're going to bring this in with 12s and 13s, but also year 11s. So just to reiterate, the way it's going to work is this. Um, <clears throat> our years, 12s and 13s, they do an end of topic assignment uh, at the end of every chapter. So when they finish calculus, they'll sorry, differentiation, they'll do a differentiation one, partial fractions and so on. And obviously we mark these as staff and give comments and I always, uh, I always kind of uh, give kids follow-up work and corrections to do and so on. And I'm not entirely convinced how effective it is. And anytime I, I put a little thing at the bottom, reflect on how well you think you did with this topic, it's like, right, okay, am I just going through the motions with this? But I love the idea of this reflection sheet. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to do it slightly different to how um, Ollie's going to do it. This is early days, of course. But we're just going to do it on a single side, a single sheet of A4. On one side of A4, um, I'm going to get the kids to copy out the question. Now, I know because I asked Ollie to send me a photo. He gets the kids to, to cut out the actual exam question that they've got wrong and stick it in. I like the idea of getting kids to copy out the question. Now, for, for some questions, it may take a while, a couple of minutes. But for most questions, it, it's relatively short. But I think copying out the question, again, just makes them pay more attention to it. It makes sure that they read every word. So they're going to copy out the question on one side of A4. Then they're going to flip over to the other side of A4. And they're going to do three things. Firstly, they're going to write down what topic or concept um, that question's covering. Secondly, and possibly this is the most important one, they're going to try and explain in their own words what mistake they made, why they got that question wrong. And then finally, they're going to write out a model answer. So how this is going to work practically for year 12 and 13s is whenever we give back an assignment, we always build in some reflection time. And this is going to be the reflection time. Pick out two or three questions that you got wrong and create one of these sheets for each of these questions. Copy the question down. What area is it from on the other side? What mistake did you make? Um, and what's the correct answer? These can then be kept in a file. And within a couple of months, you've got a bespoke set of revision cards that kids can either use just before the exam, in the build-up to the exam, or in a regular routine as part of their private independent study. Or if in lesson, I finish a lesson 10 minutes early and I'm thinking, right, what we're going to do? Get out your revision cards. If a child gets one of the cards right, put it to the bottom of the pile. Brilliant news. If they get it wrong, put it kind of halfway through the pile so it comes up a bit more regularly and so on. Such a low-tech, simple, effective thing. It's, I just think it's absolutely genius. And when I was talking to Karen, my head of department, we said, well, why, why don't we use this with year 11s? 
loads of marks, PPEs, whatever you want to call them coming up here. Give kids the paperback. We, we know how kids work. They're just looking at the questions they got right. Oh, I got 70%, brilliant. But what about the 30% you got wrong? Well, let's make it actionable and practical. Let's give them one of these sheets of paper and say, pick out three questions that you've got wrong and do this routine. Question on the front, topic area, why you got it wrong, correction on the back. I think it's going to be super, super, super effective. I'll be trialing this out over the coming weeks and months and if I remember to I'll feedback in this takeaway about it or if you see me talk uh, um, in the next couple of months or so I'm sure I'll be banging on about it as well because I think it's absolutely wonderful anyway there you go um, all that remains for me to do is once again thank my superb guest Ollie Lovell and as I say check, up all the, uh, check out all the work that Ollie does um, I'll put links to it um, in the show notes thank you to podcastthemes.com for the wonderful jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show and the biggest thank you of all to you my loyal listeners especially if you've made it this far through the podcast but I, I hope you appreciate the kind of long form of these I know that teachers are busy flipping heck but hopefully this is this will get you quite a few uh, trips in the car to and from work or quite a few laps around around the, the park with your dog listen to this one i love these long form interviews i find it very hard to cut stuff out so i hope you i hope you like the format as well and um, two two usual plugs at the end of this if you enjoy the podcast please share it with your colleagues and leave a review on itunes if you get chance and if you've uh, bought my book and you enjoyed the book and if you wouldn't mind giving that a review on um, amazon i would be over the moon i'll be back with some absolutely stellar top of the draw guests over the coming weeks and months thanks so much for listening you take care of yourselves and Bye for now.